is brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with the military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. Be sure to enter the code UNITY at checkout to help support the podcast. And in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become part of their unarmed forces today. And by Beneath. Starting with the first thing that you put on in the morning, Beneath inspires you to be your most authentic self. Get ready to experience increased comfort that radically outperforms anything that you've tried before while leaving minimal impact on Mother Earth. Use the code UNITY to get 15% off at checkout at Beneath.com. That's B-N-3-T-H.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I'm here with, I guess, an okay guest. Uh, so this is my redheaded friend. Um, he is a professional vagabond. He is the founder of Orion Design Group. He is also the co-host of Full Auto Friday on the Cleared Hot podcast with Andy Stump. And by the looks of it, I want to say kind of sponsored by Black Rifle because of the shirt, but that also could be because you fucking know everybody in the industry. So everyone, please welcome the lone element, the kindest homeless uh, veteran, Brian Bishop. Hi, Brian. Good morning. Hi. Morning. Morning. Welcome. Good morning. I can't believe you're actually it, here. Internet, what is up? Well, apparently everybody should know who you are, so I might as well just throw <laughs> that fucking yeah, there you out go. the window, because uh, apparently you're a big deal. So let's find out about how big of a deal you really are. I mean, not that big of a deal. No. We'll Depending on what up. circle you walk in, not big, that big of a deal. Most people are like, oh, you know that asshole? And other people are like... Yeah, that dude. We know who he that, is. That Other guy. people are like, oh, who? Well, I mean, they're not wrong. You do kind of gray man it in most circles, if I'm not wrong. And you too, and if, if my listeners don't understand what gray man it is, it's basically where when you're somebody like Bishop, you act like you're not when you're around every other civilian normal human being. Because if you did act like yourself, you would terrify the fuck out of them. Oh, yes, yes. People on occasion run away from me with their faces on fire screaming from things that have come out of my mouth. So I have to definitely, you know, know my audience and and uh, proceed with caution on occasion. Okay. All right. I'll accept it. So let's get into how I got somehow locked into this weird fuckery of a group that I've been having on the podcast. And it... It's an interesting dynamic with this guy here. And I will I will tell everybody right off the bat, this is just going to be a shit show. Here's why. He's a shit show. He's an absolute human disaster. And the red that comes off of him just it, it fuels the fire. It's constant. It never stops. He, If you have seen any posts recently that he has tagged me in or I've rolled him in, don't don't take offense for me when he calls me a bitch and a hoe because he'll pay for it. That's the thing you guys never have to worry about. Payback's a bitch and he knows that. So it's all good and it's all fun and games. So there's no need to get upset. He's not abusing a, a, a woman. He's not, he's not being mean. He's just, he doesn't know any better, everyone. He just was never taught any better. I mean, that's not true. It's just, it's just you basically. It's oh, just, okay. It is, you're yeah. just because we have a we have a special relationship. Mm-hmm. One, because we're both veterans. Mm. Because we are we allowed to talk about our, our yeah we can talk about it. i actually haven't talked about it so go for it perfect let's do, well we can dive into it then uh okay. the our 
healing process that we participated in with uh, heroic hearts for an ayahuasca retreat. Mm-hmm. Psychedelics. That's yeah. how we. That's how we met. Was psychedelics. We, yes, we did. And who did we meet through? We met through uh, Griff, my buddy Griff, who mm-hmm. is a fantastic human. This is what happens when you do podcasts on Zoom okay. and you're not in care. a studio. Yeah, but that's what you, you, yeah, but nobody cares about that. You're, you're the only one that's drawing attention to the phone ringing behind you and your ill-prepared, unprofessional setting. It's not my <laughs> fault. That's not my fault. Just that's for the record, people, just for the record, let's back up oh, here for a second. Oh, here we go. I, I wanted to, I wanted to come up to Canada. However, what's going on in Canada right now? The Nazis are running it. Oh my God. What is going on with your socialist regime up there? Your communists. Well, they have their heads so far up their ass that they don't know how to read papers or documents or medical journals or let alone listen to anybody else that's surviving this in any other country. Right. And we, it's okay. We have the same problems in certain states down here, but that's what the great part about what we do down here is states' rights come into play. And luckily, I'm in a state where it doesn't, it's not a, it's not heavily politicized, except the county that I live in. Like I did get into a nice little argument with uh, a guy went into buy steaks at Whole Foods, what was it, day before yesterday? And oh man, like went in without a mask on because the mask mandate is officially over in Wyoming. I live in Wyoming currently. I'm trying to get some, uh, a shop built on my property down here. And the store assistant manager approached me with a box full of masks and I was like no thank you and he's like well you have to put one on <laughs> no and thank I was you. like and I was like no actually I don't the mask mandates over in the state and it just officially ended in this county because yeah. Teton County is where it's you know it's where Jackson Hole is and everybody that knows about Jackson Hole knows that there's a lot of wealthy people here with very strange ideas and that also do not lead read medical journals and are very fearful people and are you know, cunts, is it religious? Basically. I don't know. I don't know that place. Well, and I don't know what you're talking about when it comes to Jackson Hole. So can you give my listeners and myself a little background as to where it's, you live? Yeah. And so in, in Wyoming, we are, we're officially a red state, which means conservative. I, I don't know. Are, are the bulk of your listeners Canadian? Uh, no, actually they're not. We have quite a few Americans. So go okay, for it. Perfect. Yeah. So it's a, it's considered a red state, which I enjoy. Uh, I'm a more middle of the road guy politically, like uh, Andy and I always talk about it all the time. I'm socially liberal, but, you know, fiscally conservative. And I, you know, hence the, hence the ayahuasca retreats that we're, that we'll get to here in a second, but the uh, political scape here, I hate that there's a right and that there's a left. And more importantly, I hate that we've abandoned science. We've abandoned, you know, data facts and what's happening now is you're seeing this like covid thing split and polarize into political parties so if you are on the left side of the house you're super into vaccinations you're super into and i'm just going to generalize here um because there are you know shades, shades of gray there 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 is on the left masks masking heavy masking and uh you know lockdowns and social distancing and all of this nonsense and on the right we've kind of been like hey we're kind of done with all that we're reading science and facts and data and there's no data to really support the fact that masks have anything higher than a 50 percent you know efficacy rate so 
do they really work that great? Mm, we don't know, probably not. And the fact that now there is so much data out there that basically talks about like the band in which you are affected by the virus, you know, like if you are my age uh, and you take Old good man. care of yourself, you, 40s i feel like i'm doing okay for 40 i'm not bald i'm not fat i have my hair yet yet uh, yet correct we're all headed that way though are um, we though i feel like i'm just fine i mean i've seen you without makeup so let's not get carried away you my no makeup <laughs> face is borderline the exact same as makeup face the only difference is mascara is included i mean Please. you might have a filter on too right now so let's like i don't it's zoom i don't even know how to do that my girl left me it's all on me now you're gonna you're gonna do it in post okay let's not before this thing goes up on whatever how platform you how you're do gonna you do, do some that? editing I don't know how to do it, but I'm assuming that you have people that will do that. No, I edit these and I drop it in and I do the audio edit. And the only thing I swap out is the intro etro. So let's uh, shove that right up your ass. <laughs> anyway, back to COVID. COVID interaction in the grocery store. Yeah. So I, they tried to bully me into wearing a mask. And here's my position on the whole thing. My official Brian Bishop position is individual freedoms. If you want to believe that masks are the way, wear one. I don't mm. care. Mm. If you want to social distance, don't care. If you want to go get jabbed by a vaccine that has a 95% rate, has a bunch of side effects and more. Yeah, it's, it's like not, the virus, like your body's like what, 99% in the virus and the actual vaccine is like 97 or 97.9. It's not, it's, it's fucking the same. It's the same. Yeah, right or lower, depending on which vaccine it is. So like, no, when it's FDA approved, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I don't have the, I don't have the luxury to be that. Cause I've had like 18 shots of fucking back uh, anthrax when I was on active duty and smallpox and all kinds of other yeah. lovely shit. Right. So I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Um, I do believe that, you know, vaccinations have helped with other infectious disease. So like, I'm not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. However, I'm not going to rush right in to something where they're like, oh, well, you still have to wear it. Get the, get the vaccination, but it's not as effective as your actual immune system uh, for your age bracket. Also, you still have to wear a mask. Also, you still have to social distance. Also, you, so where's the, where's the, uh, in the cost benefit analysis, like, where is this a fucking win? I'll answer it. It's not, it's not <laughs> a win. So until, until we can figure all of that out, and until it's FDA approved and until they've got some more data behind this thing, I'm going to just continue to do what I do, which is, I don't, I think I might be one of those freaks because I'm a ginger and I have O positive blood, which I, I think I'm just asymptomatic and I don't, I don't get the virus because mm -hmm. all last year, all through 2020, at first I was like, okay, well, this is scary. Let's see what happens with this. And right. nothing happened to me and I didn't change my life and I didn't wear a mask uh, until I had to go get my Montana driver's license when I was up in Montana. So I, I, up until that point, I haven't flown. I haven't flown for like a year and a half. I've got to jump on a flight to go to Chicago here pretty soon, but that'll be the first time in like over well over a year that I've had to fly. Um, and just nothing makes sense with any of this stuff. So I didn't change my life at all. I went to several jujitsu tournaments with Andy or not tournaments, but, uh, seminars, and rolled around, got hot and sweaty with people breathing on me, dripping sweat on me, did not get sick. And then <laughs> fuck Andy, uh, who did get COVID, 
uh, didn't realize that he had COVID, but uh, we had an incident where we, it's the, during his, when he got infected, the window he got infected, I went to his house for Thanksgiving. We sat right across the table from each other, laughed, joked, killed a bunch of great wine, fucking had a great time. A few days later, Evan Hafer of Black Rifle Coffee and Trevor Thompson of Black Rifle Coffee showed up in town to do podcasting stuff with Andy and stayed at his house, hung out with him. Uh, we met up for breakfast, I think two days later. And uh, was it two days? Yeah, I think it was two days. All of us sat at the same table together, had breakfast, laughed, joked around, had a great time. They went and did podcasts, uh, left town. And then a day after that, Andy was like, oh, shit, I can't taste or smell anything. And he went and got checked out and popped positive for COVID. And so, you know, I kept tabs on him and I was like, how you feeling? He's like, dude, I'm fine. And I'm like, a couple of days later, I'm like, how you feeling? And I didn't get an answer from him. So I was like, ah, so I shot a whitetail. I made, we made some whitetail stew. We took it over to his house and gave it to him. And he was completely fine. Like you wouldn't, and I asked him, I was like, dude, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, I feel fine. It didn't affect him outside of his sense of taste and smell. Now, I know that there's probably people out there listening to this that are probably like, oh my God, people are dying. You're, people are dying. Yes, people did die. And that's an unfortunate byproduct of something called natural selection, which I've been talking about also for a year. And when you have a new virus introduced into our ecosystem or a new predator for that matter, yes, lots of people are going to, die initially. Um, I think, however, we're not in a pandemic anymore. We're in an endemic and we're starting probably to reach some equilibrium and herd immunity. And it looks to me like a lot of the states that have like said no more masks back to full business like Florida, like Texas, now like Wyoming, where I'm at. I think Montana is also like we're done with this nonsense are doing just fine. Hospitals are not getting overrun. Everybody's great. Nothing happening. So if you're high risk people and you want to go get a, go get, go get a vaccination, mm -hmm. go get it. If you want, if you're high risk and you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you want to social distance, social distance, but don't try and put your belief system on me. Okay. Cause well, I'm not, I'm not into it. Well, you're never been into it. The, we're going to get into a lot of different things today, but we'll, we'll, the thing with COVID with you, and I think people aren't, won't quite understand. And if my listeners don't understand is when you have dealt with situations or vaccinations that are 10 times more violent on the body and been shoved into reluctantly without a choice, or you have deployed several times, probably more times than you can remember truly, because you've had your head knocked a few times, but you've deployed at, a, at an instance that where you have never really you have never really been that traditional person who has, you know, they've deployed one time, they stayed inside a fob and that's been the end of their deployments. And that's been the end of the, their viewpoint of that country or that part of the world. You have worked, do you want to, I don't know what I'm allowed to say about what you did and who you worked for. So can you tell me or my listeners what you used to do? So then I can tiptoe around that same stuff. Yeah. Yeah. In there's the no tiptoeing. There's okay. no tiptoeing. It's open book stuff because it happened okay. so long ago. So we can talk about whatever you want okay. about, uh, about that. So yes, I was in, after high school, I joined the Marine Corps. I was in the Marine Corps uh, for four years. I was over at 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. I went to sniper selection, got selected as a private, went to the sniper platoon. I stayed in the sniper platoon pretty much the whole, that whole enlistment. Uh, it was Clinton era stuff, so nothing was going on. This was in 1995 to 1999. 
Um, and so towards the end of it, I was like, okay, cool. I've done the military thing now for four years, pretty successfully in my opinion. Uh, I'm bored kind of, I'm still early twenties now. I want to go do check, go, maybe it's time to go to college or maybe it's time to go just live my life in a more free capacity. Cause as you know, in the military, like you're pretty much under their thumb and owned by them. And you can't like just start off and go on vacation when you want to, it has to, your, your, your leave has to fall into a block of time in the training schedule where nothing's going on, or you're not allowed to leave or go anywhere, or do anything, you well, know, you whenever you, and you just pretend like you didn't do it. <laughs> I mean, there's that, we, I, I tried not to do that because that had dire consequences uh, in my organization. So the, uh, yeah, so I did that for four years, got out, uh, went went to Colorado, was a snowboard bum, uh, climbing bum for a while, uh, worked some construction jobs. Didn't I decided I wasn't still responsible or had the desire to go to college. So I'm like, ah, no, no, thanks. So uh, then I got a job. Uh, I got a job doing armored security for this private company that had a contract that would pick up money from the Federal Reserve in Denver and then distribute it to the banks in the in the in the whole state of Colorado. So on many occasions I was riding in a van that had like 32 million dollars in cash. Excuse me. And so that's normal at a young age. Perfectly right. So yeah, at the ripe old age of 21. And <laughs> I just, you know, I it was a, it was an okay job, but we just didn't get paid good. We just got paid shit. And, you know, I think I was getting paid 11 or $12 an hour to transport $32 million in cash feels, around. And feels like I was like, you know, if I have a situation where we get robbed and held up, I don't know if 11 or $12 an hour is worth the risk that I'm taking here. Um, so, uh, not only that, the hours were long, it was six day, six work, uh, six day, week, work weeks. And it just, it was sucked. So I got out of that, did some more construction, became a construction foreman for, uh, this construction company in Denver. And then I just kind of realized at that point is where reality started sinking in, in my mind. And I was like, I really kind of missed the military and yeah, maybe the military wasn't so bad after all. And yeah, I think maybe I'm kind of out here and I've explored around and I've done the snowboard bum thing. And I've, you know, worked all these different jobs as a civilian and I'm not really psyched about any of it. And I don't really feel like there was a like a high level of fulfillment for me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I was way more fulfilled in the military. And so, but you know, hindsight being 2020, you never, you can't ever know that until you put yourself in that situation. So like, had I not got out, I would, and did all those things, I would have never had that realization hit me. Or appreciation. So, correct. So I opted to uh, you know, uh, go back into the military. And so I went back to the Marine Corps recruiter and they, you know, fucking didn't like the fact that I got out, you know, they, even one of them openly called me a traitor and was like, Oh, okay. Traitor. Now you want to come back in? And I was like, Oh, traitor. Like I had an honorable discharge, didn't get in any trouble, got promoted to, you know, non-commissioned officer, you know, as an NCO, you know, I was in charge of a four man sniper team. Like I, I, did a pretty good job while I was in, um, expert shooter. And yeah. So I was like, I don't know why I'm don't know why I'm a traitor all of a sudden, but anyway, they raked me over the coals about it. And then they were like, well, you're gonna have to write an essay. You're gonna have to do all these things. You're gonna have to go in front of a board. 
we don't know if we're going to let you back in or not. <clears throat> so I wrote an essay. I did all the things they wanted me to do. And they're like, yeah, this is probably going to take six months to get you back in. And I was like, okay. And so right about that time, I got offered a job in Atlanta doing construction field engineering apprentice work. So I went to Atlanta, I moved to Atlanta and I was working for this company and I moved in May of 2001 and lived in Atlanta uh, for about six, six months and was there and was doing the telescope layout for the pedestal that we were concrete pouring. We're gonna pour concrete for this pedestal that the uh, observatory telescope was gonna sit on for the observation for the science building for Decatur University. And I'm up there and I'm like doing the layout and snapping chalk lines and measuring things out. And all of a sudden I get a text from my mom. She's like, hey, if you can get next to a TV, like a plane hit a building. And I was like, oh, weird. I was like, well, I'm working, dismissed it. Mom texts me like five minutes later. Hey, this is really, this looks really serious. And I was like, she's like, it hit some big building in New York. And I was like, oh. And then I looked at my watch and it was almost break time. So I went down the scaffolding, uh, went to the site trailer, went inside where the superintendent was, the site manager and all of our senior field engineers were at. And they were all huddled around the TV that we had in the um, site trailer. And I walked up just in time to elbow my way in between and get eyes on the TV and watch live the second plane hit the second tower. And so fast forward through that first week of like 9-11 going down, the Marine Corps called me back and they're like, hey, come on back. Question, so before you of, move on. Hold on. Yeah. When, so when you saw that happen, though, because now that I know what I know about you, what you because because you had been in before, was there any point in time where you looked at that and went, I know who that might be? Were you ever briefed no. on it? Like, because you were in a, you weren't in a regular unit at that point when you were still in. No, no, so I knew that it was terrorism. Yes, I didn't know who it was, but I definitely That's knew it was. That's what a I mean. You attack. knew. You yeah, knew it was it. something on those lines. Yeah, yeah, I knew it was terrorism, and I knew that it was bad, uh, super, super bad. Uh, especially by the time I got home, and then you know the other plane hit the Pentagon building, I was like, oh yeah, we're full on under attack right now. This is really, really bad. So, um, yeah. Uh, it as it would go the marine corps called me back like literally a week later after 9 11 they're like hey remember all that side of stuff we said you had to do you don't have to do that now yeah your orders are here come, come on back we'll take you and i was like yeah because we're going to go to war now yeah um so went uh went back to denver picked up my orders reported back into camp pendleton uh checked in at third battalion first marines there was no uh, room in the sniper platoon they were they were fully staffed so I went down because I was a water survival instructor and could swim really well they sent me down to a to the raider company and I was the chief scout swimmer for the raider company uh, for the small amphibious you know the black the black boats navy seals aren't the only ones that like paint their faces cool colors and like get on the little black boats and do beach stuff in the middle of the oh, night I thought so it we, was I thought it was you and like Maxim models that did that I didn't know that like other people actually pretended like that no no and it's actually not that fun it's one of, it looks really high speed in the movies and it looks not really like great that. on camera it's actually one of the most miserable experiences like I've had in the military to mm -hmm. the point where like I don't really love the ocean anymore at all Andy's the same way, like career seal. He fucking hates the water. I can barely even get him to go to the lake and put his feet in the lake water, let alone <laughs> anything to do with the ocean and the beach and sand. So yeah, it's, it's a really miserable thing. So I did that, uh, for a while. Uh, and then I did So then we went on a deployment 
And then it was a normal deployment. And meanwhile, the war is kicking off super hard in Afghanistan. And we're doing, uh, we were part of the, uh, I think the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit. Um, and we were doing a standard West Pacific float. We called them a Westpac float. And so we're floating around and we, we went to Hawaii and trained in Hawaii and the Kahukus, you know, with the army. They've got an infantry division out there. I don't, I can't remember if it's 25th ID or whatever, but they, they have infantry units on training areas out there. So we did some jungle warfare training in Hawaii with the army. Then we sailed over to Australia, did some stuff in Australia with our Australian army. Then we went up to, oh, where was it? We had a, a stopover. We were going to go to Thailand and then we had to skip because the threat level was too high. Um, they thought that there might be some like Al Qaeda operating in and around thailand at the time so they said no uh thailand so we went over places to... yeah i mean yes i think it's the abu, sayyaf. abu sayyaf tamil tigers like they're not just in the philippines they're in they're all over that uh, that that part of the world um and then we did uh so we ended up going to singapore stopping there for a while and then we went to uh we ended up sailing into the persian gulf and we did a we did a foreign internal defense mission with the Kuwaiti army and we did a uh, foreign internal defense mission with the Jordanian army. However, while we were in Kuwait training was when the Falaka Island incident ha happened. And if you're not familiar with that, it was some Al Qaeda. There was this, there's this Island in Kuwait off the shore in the Persian Gulf. It's, it's abandoned. It's called Falaka Island. And it was a resort island at one point and had lots of you know had uh it was fully inhabited has all these buildings all this infrastructure on it and then it just during when saddam invaded kuwait like you know during the first persian gulf war like it was abandoned and they just now use it for tr for training purposes for the army and for us to come in and train and so it's like a full-on like over the beach urban like you go right from the beach to this urban center where you can just train and it's completely abandoned so you can like set up like live fire ranges and do cqb oh, wow. and like do all kinds of like urban patrolling stuff and like really cool training uh on this little island well what happened was there's also locals that you know come and take care of the island and there was some al-qaeda infiltrators that you know are sympathizers that came to the island and one of the units it was a lima company i think was we had swapped out because we were doing this round robin where we left, usually, literally we'd left two days before this incident happened. And uh, the, our sister company showed up and was training in that area. And we had moved out to a live fire range in the middle of the Udari range. And uh, a truck pulled up and they did a drive by and they unfortunately, I think they wounded two and they killed one Marine. And then our, our guys ended up killing both of the people that were driving the vehicle. So, um, yeah, that happened. So we got we got hit on our normal deployment, um, and that was a big eye opener. That's I think when the battalion kind of changed their because you know we hadn't been involved in Afghanistan at all yet, so we were completely still right. unbattle tested and had no combat experience still at this point in time. And so when that happened, we were like, oh shit, this is ser this is serious, and yeah. yeah, we're not just at war in Afghanistan. Like this is now a uh, you know, Al Qaeda has now radicalized people outside of Afghanistan. And now anywhere we go in the Middle East, we need to have our we need to have rounds in our gun and make sure that we've got our eyes up and our ears, you know, ears open. So. OK, wait. So this point was what. So this was 2001. This happened. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so if they yeah. knew about this in 2001, why did it take them so long to figure out that Al-Qaeda was fucking everywhere else? If they were already there. Like, that's what I'm, I'm curious. Because, like, if that's happening in 2001, so we knew, we knew it was Al-Qaeda. Everybody announced it. As soon as, as soon as Bush announced it and said, hey, we're going to war, this is who we're going after. I remember that. I was obviously clearly much younger than you but i remember it and i know exactly where i was and i know the whole situation but what i'm curious about is why if we if they knew there was a chance you were going to be hit in other places why all of a sudden did it take so long to figure out that al-qaeda had made sympathizers in other parts of the country because that didn't really start happening we didn't start hearing about that at least in a media perspective or in other countries or just in general, I didn't start hearing about that there were outside of Afghanistan and Iraq until like what, 2006, 2007. Now that could just be Canada, but we weren't under the impression that that was, that they were spreading out and, and putting their views into other people's thought, uh, minds. Like, I'm just curious, that seems really early on for them to have sympathizers already targeting you when you hadn't even deployed yet. Yeah, it, it was not uh, I, I think everybody had such a laser focus on what was going on in Afghanistan and everyone was still reeling like the smoke hadn't cleared at ground zero right. in New York yet when this was going on. So like everybody, I think, was still trying to get the get their brain around, you know, our intelligence community, I think, was still trying to be like, oh, shit, and get their ducks in a row and get their brain around like just how uh, how big a deal this was and just how far everything had spread out. And I think at that point in time, like we knew, you know we traced everything back to, okay, the hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. Most of them were Saudi. Most of them had ties to the bin Laden family. Um, then they had traced that to Africa where they'd done, you know, where they had been hiding and doing training in, in you know, in Sudan and then they, uh, you know, in and around Khartoum. And then they, you know, traced the rat line into Afghanistan. And I think outside of that focus, they didn't really understand how, much the uh the ideology was starting to spread like cancer and so yeah it was uh it was wild it was a wild time um so we that incident happened we ended up sailing you know did our finished out our deployment there sailed back through australia sailed back through hawaii and then i remember something really strange happening we were sailing back uh to California and our commander got us in a formation on the flight deck and he was like gentlemen go home and enjoy yourselves and have a great time and really enjoy your time with your excuse me with your family because you never know you know what's going to happen and there's a lot of things going on in the world right now and we could be called to go to Iraq real soon and I remember standing there with my a good friend of mine who was also an NCO. And I looked over at him and I was like, okay, I thought, cause I thought for a second, maybe our, our company commander was fucking up and he was not, he maybe looked, looked at the wrong country on the map or read the wrong situation <laughs> report. And I was like, did he say Iraq? And he, my buddy was like, yeah, yeah, he said Iraq. And I was like, uh, did he mean Afghanistan? Cause that's where the war is going on. And you know, uh, none of us had any visibility or like really were tracking what was going on in Iraq at the time and how things were spinning up, you know, because they keep information pretty compartmentalized when you're on a boat floating around in the middle of the ocean with no internet or phone. Why? Why not? Right. Yeah. Why keep your troops informed of what's going on? So anyway, um, they ended up, 
we ended up going back home for leave and I had been gone for 11 months. And so I was really excited to get home, see my family, spend some time at home. I took 26 days leave, got home and I was eight days in and they emergency recalled us to come back. And we got back and then they got us in a room and they briefed us that we were going to invade Iraq. And I was right. like, what? That's normal. What the? I was like, what in the fuck? I th- like, what? I thought the war was going on. I was so confused. I remember sitting there thinking to myself, why? Okay, what? Iraq, really? Why? And then that was the whole, like, everybody was like, oh, well, they have ties to Al-Qaeda and they have, you know, they've got weapons of mass destruction and they're a clear and present threat. And they tried to assassinate George Bush Sr. And like everything started to really, the narrative started to really go hot and heavy on the Iraq front. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this isn't, Iraq didn't attack us. You know, Al-Qaeda did. This is in Afghanistan. Like, why are we? fucking around with Iraq, but when you're, you know, a corporal team leader in the United States Marine Corps, you don't get to, you don't get to have those kind of thoughts or feelings or, or express them in any way, shape or form. <laughs> you don't get to ask, sir, why are, I'm just confused. can you just tell me why we're not going to go attack Afghanistan? Like why we're not going to Afghanistan? Um, you don't get to do that. So you, uh, you know, pack your bags and you get ready to go to Iraq, which is what we did. So then we sailed over and got into uh they flew us off the ships you know uh into i think we I'm trying to remember how I, our transit like we beeline straight over so i think our transit over to the middle east was like over to the gulf was like uh, i want to say five weeks it was quick so we sailed over there got there within five weeks they flew us off the ships into into coyote um and now you're starting to pick up the story where i don't know if anybody is familiar with generation kill that HBO series, that was my, that was my area era. That was my time frame of like when this is happening. So if you want some good entertainment, go check out that series. It's called Generation Kill. Uh, it's on HBO, but that's the time frame it was picking up. So we did the, uh, we assembled there, trained, I think for like three or four weeks. And then we crossed the border and invaded, I think, March 19th of 2003. And so did that and then came back from that and then um, went back and did the, uh, went home for six months and then came back and did Fallujah. And during my second deployment, I'd gotten promoted to Sergeant. And I was Fallujah like, in this the first weird... time, right? What's that? Fallujah the first time. No, no, Fallujah, invasion the first time, Fallujah was the second deployment. Okay. And so I got to, we got back and or we, we came back into country, came back into Iraq. And I just remember it was a real hard transition because Marines are traditionally trained to locate, close with, and destroy. Like we're, we're there to kill the enemy wholesale mm-hmm. and, and uh, do a really good job of that. And so now we're getting kind of shifted into this thing where the country had been secured and now we're trying to rebuild things. And I remember at the time they were calling it SASO, Security and Stability Operations. And so okay. we were trying to rebuild the Iraqi army. and that's right when the insurgency started to like just catch like a forest fire. Um, and so we, I got tasked because I was in this weird purgatory where I wasn't senior enough to be a platoon sergeant, but I wasn't junior enough to be a squad leader anymore. And I was in this weird like assistant platoon sergeant billet that really kind of sucked. And it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it's just like this weird purgatory billet where you hang out until you're like senior enough to get promoted and then be a platoon sergeant. So 
feels I, like, a, like a big inconvenience on a long, on a longer stretch. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me, but not a lot of what the military does. So I guess we'll just have to live correct. with that. Yeah, especially the Marine, especially the Marine Corps. We have our own little special way of doing things that I crayons. Vehement, you eat vehement, crayons. Yeah, we eat crayons. Well, I vehemently disagree with a lot of the things, which is why I got out um, shortly after this situation uh, occurred. But the uh, I got tasked with becoming the regiment asked for volunteers. So I went, I, I had no clue what was going on. I just was like, this is better than what, you know, I'm doing right now. So I volunteered to go to the regiment for this mystery job that they needed people of my rank to go do. And so I went and volunteered for this job. And as it turned out, like I was the first one to show up and they're like, cool, you're going to go do uh, foreign internal defense. Um, and you're going to go train the new Iraqi army and new Iraqi, like special ops, some of their special operations units. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, all right. And I'd never done that before. I'd never had really a lot of experience, like dealing with locals or training them or, you know, customs, cultures, courtesies, like, you know, the language, like barrier, right. like I had no experience in doing that because up until this point, my whole life as a infantry Marine had consisted of locate, close with and destroy. Right. And so now we're shifting into what now is a fundamental special operations task, which is foreign internal defense. And so had no experience with that whatsoever. So I remember there was an army, there was an army, and I don't know if they were a special mission unit or just an, an, a special forces uh, operational detachment alpha, but they were there, they were on our camp and they wore civilian clothes and they had big beards and they had ball caps on. It kind of looked like me right now. Oh, and so like you right now. Right. And so I, you know, knew that that's what their mission was, you know, foreign internal defense was a facet of what they did and what they are really good at and what they're really known for. So I went and knocked on their gate and I went and talked to their team sergeant and he, um, you know, basically sat me down. I was like, I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. Can you please help me? And he was like, yeah, every night after you eat, after evening chow at the chow hall, come on over here and I will give you some classes and some pointers and some lessons. And so one of the big principles and points was he was like, uh, you need to learn how to speak their language as, as best as you can. And he and said, what were, they go speaking? what were they speaking in Iraq? Uh, they were speaking and you know, uh, they were, <laughs> and I've come to find this out because I've, because I, Ani Tahachi Erebi Shwea, which means I, I speak a little bit of Arabic, but I said that in Iraqi dialect. I've said that to Egyptians before, and I've said it to Saudis and Jordanians before and they look at me and they're like what kind of crack cocaine are you smoking right now because that is not that's not Arabic so what I've come to find out is that like Iraqi Arabic certain dialects of it are like the abonics of Arabic so nobody really it's like very very slang driven and nobody outside of Iraq really <laughs> can understand what they're saying but yeah I I learned how to speak the uh, you know conversation get be conversational in the I, I, Iraqi right dialect and so um i went so finding this out and having no language experience or no language training experience i ran down to the s2 shop and i got the little i don't know if they gave you guys the little like language books that's got like the basic phrases and like we they've got the little... language books we got like the yeah. um, we got a little book that goes in your little breast pocket there and it's about this big and it had customs in afghanistan and yeah. it had I think uh, the province of uh, certain provinces in Afghanistan, and it didn't give you anything else. 
right. that was it. That's what we yeah. got. Uh huh. Yeah. So we got, we, we've got, yeah. So we, so I went and I just got all of the information I got. We ha luckily had language discs on CD ROM that I could like drop into my old so Sony bio laptop and plug my <laughs> earphones into and like sit there and listen to it. And so we had a, um, or my disc man, I had a disc man with me and I would listen to my disc man and like listen to language all, uh, you know, for several hours a day. And so then I ended up becoming the NCOIC or the non-commissioned officer in charge of the training detachment. And so we went out and trained and we had a six week, excuse me. Yeah. Six week course. And we would put the, put them through the six week course, graduate them and then immediately pick up another course. And so I did that for about five months of my um, second deployment. And you know, meanwhile, you know, friends in my battalion are, they're operating and they're going out and they're doing raids and they're like, you know, doing ambushes and they're doing counter IED stuff and they're doing, they're doing cool, go fast shit. And I'm over here training these Iraqis. And I was like, what in the fuck? This sucks. And so then about, I would say five, yeah, five months in, four and a half, five months in, then we get the announcement that we're going to go invade Fallujah for the second time because it's become pretty much an insurgent stronghold. And so we got the orders. And so then they shut down the training and they're like, okay, everybody's going to go back to their battalion. So I get back to my battalion and I'd been in my battalion for like, fuck, three, three days, maybe two days. And um, I get called back to the regimental headquarters by the regimental commander himself. Um, because oh, when I was doing the, when I was, I had met him on a few occasions because I was working directly for the regiment when I was um, uh, doing the doing the training the stuff training. for the Iraqis. Yeah. So he had come to the base. He'd sat through a few of our graduations. I'd met him. Um, and then he, you know, so we, we were on a first name basis. He called me, you know, Brian and I called him, sir. And yeah, uh, he, response. right. And so he, uh, you know, we, we were on a first name basis and he, he's great. He's a great commander. Um, and then he called me back to go uh, to basically he wanted me, they decided that they were going to take some of the guys that I had trained and just graduated and they were going to be our partner force for the invasion of Iraq. But they were really worried about letting these guys maneuver and deconflict fires and do all this stuff on their own. <laughs> so what had happened was one of the commanders that I, Iraqi commander, uh, Colonel Jassim Mohammed, who was a fantastic commander. And I, during his time training there, I had established a really, really great rapport with him. He was a brigade commander and he went through our training with his guys side by side with his guys. He was the only Iraqi officer, which is why I really liked him and had a good respect for him. And we established a really tight bond that went and did every single class with his guys through all of the training, did all of the PT, did all of the classes, did all of, did everything with his guys side by side. And he was, a, he was a Colonel. Um, so I thought that that was really awesome. So him and I would drink tea at nighttime yep. and we would talk about, you know, life. He, he had a very Western, he was a very pro Western mindset. He was very happy that we were there. He was very happy that the Saddam regime was out of power. Um, some, some of the Bathists and some of the Saddam Fedayeen had kidnapped some of his family like years before and they killed them. They disappeared. They never saw him again. Like, one of his uncles and one of his cousins got Jesus. snatched up and they never saw him again. So he was very happy that the Saddam regime was gone. 
I have to ask um, a question before you go. Yeah. I want, before you go on about that, because I want to, I want to know something, because this is what we ran into in Afghanistan. So I don't know because this was much earlier on if you ran into any of that. But it, was there a point where you, when you were training the Iraqi army, did they start sending people to infiltrate that at that point, or were you getting any of that? Because I know later on when I was there in 09, and I know you know what 09 was like, but they had a lot of Afghan National Army. We had a lot of people infiltrating, like the Taliban infiltrating them and training with us and then just wiping people out and walking us into ambushes, like doing things that you would hope they wouldn't because you just spent all that time training them. So did you run into any of that with them at all? Oh, yeah, we had. That happened. I had more experience with that in Afghanistan later on down the road than I did in Iraq. Now we did have a few, we did have a few infiltrators and we had co-located with us. I had a Marine intelligence, human exploitation team with us, human team. And we would, during the end processing, we would do background investigations as best we could on the, and they handled all of that. And on a couple of occasions, I would say on three occasions during that five month period, we did catch infiltrators that had been um, captured and had known, um, uh, ties to Al Qaeda and, and, or ties mm-hmm. to the Ba'athist regime and to the Saddam Fedayeen. So we did roll up, like we, we would be like, Hey, this is how we handled that. I would make an announcement after training. <laughs> I'd be like, Hey, I need you, you know, uh, to come to the office because there's a problem with your pay and we just need to verify some of your information so that we can get you paid, make sure you get your money this, this pay period. And so and they believed that they, they believed that story. Yeah. They, like, yeah. They, no yep. Problem. They would believe, yep. They would believe that story. And they, and so what would we do is I would have one of my instructors, like walk them over to the, to the head office, mm-hmm. uh, the human exploitation team's office. And we would be standing in there armed and with flexi cuffs and a little hoodie and yeah. a, a, a Humvee, a high back Humvee waiting outside and we would bring them in and then we would be like, hi. And we would read them their real name, not the name that they had signed up with. And we'd be like, okay. we know who you are. And you just watch the like look in their eyes and the color drain out of their face when they're like, knew they were fucked. And so then they would. what happens you know, then? Because when what happens to you then? Yeah, because then you, on, get, you, you get hoodied and you get flexi cuffed and you get thrown on your stomach in, in a Humvee and you get taken off to... Uh, you get taken off to a detainee facility and then you get enhanced interrogation at that point in time. So at that point in time. Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> Look that's, at your face. There's yeah. a sheer smile. If you're not watching this episode, go to YouTube and watch this because there's things that you can't describe and in, in audio that I'm telling you, like the sheer smile that just went over Bishop's face is, and the redness of his cheeks right now are the, it's the best. It's the, it's the coffee. Best. Is it's that what coffee. it is? It's, it's the black rival coffee that makes you it's have a the red black face? rival coffee. Yeah. I wasn't, mm. I may, may or may not have like seen waterboarding in action. In action. Oh, but never participated. Right. I mean, I've had it done to me cause I wanted to see what it was like. And there's right. several level, there's several levels of it. Right. And yes, it is not a fun experience and you will not last long as you move up the, the levels of waterboarding, which go from basically just to like getting some water, you know, haphazardly poured across your face to make you, you know, mm-hmm. panic a little bit all the way up to maybe like, you know, getting a wet sponge shoved in your mouth and getting a lot of water or maybe other substances like coca-cola poured down your nasal cavity it's not really oh a, coca-cola we yeah, yeah it's not a, oh, okay so it's not a it's not a it's not a fun time 
I tried that because I'm at that point in time, I was a rowdy human and I was like, let's give that a shot. That's, that's going to really suck. I want to see how bad that sucks. And it, it sucked on a, on a level that is on a really high level. So yeah, it wasn't good time. So, so what you're saying is, because it's carbonated and very acidic and it, I mean, it takes the, takes, it takes the, the, uh, screw. Like you put I mean, a screw in there and it'll rust it off. I mean, it'll take, yeah, it takes corrosion off a of battery connection. So, I mean, that going down your nasal cavity is not a good time. Um, no, but I mean, you Americans, and I say you Americans, because I don't drink that shit. You guys drink that yeah. shit more than you drink water. So I feel like, isn't that torture sponsored by Coca-Cola? Isn't that really what America <laughs> stands for? <laughs> You're right. Yes. It's all your fault, Coca-Cola. Enhanced interrogation, your fault. It's been um, on by, <laughs> sponsored by yeah. Coca-Cola, waterboarding. Right. Yeah. So if you have a hard case that doesn't want to talk and can outlast the other levels of waterboarding and you have a can of Coke that may have been sitting on the table, like you may just like decide to get a little bit crafty and give that a, give that a go. And, and immediately people, people will tell you immediately what you want to do or what, what, With what Coca-Cola. you want to know. With Coca-Cola. Yeah. And so uh, there is, uh, other things that I found absolutely hilarious as well, like during some interrogations that I watched uh, with trained interrogators doing their thing. And there's like, they, because the, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to remember back, like there was Microsoft music player or whatever. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. back in the day, like on, a, on your laptop where like you could like play certain, you could play music and, and on your laptop, like there was all the patterns and shapes and yep. like cool yep. psychedelic things happening, mm-hmm. like that were going to the beat of the music. And then, so this one time I saw this interrogation where <laughs> this, they, we had this guy and- um, Sorry, the joy that comes over your face when you go this one time in this interrogation, like it's, it's insane. It's well, it was- it was hilarious because the interrogator was, he was such a great guy and he was super smart. He took his laptop and he opened it up and he had the like, he, you know, had music playing, but it was on mute. So he had like the patterns and stuff going. And then he took, he took this um, spongy like telephone cord, you know, from like okay. the old rotary yep. phones like or whatever. That kind of kink back. Yeah. 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 He yeah. took one of those and he had it, he had the end cut and he had two splices sticking out. Oh, no. And so he stuck, oh, he, no. he stuck one into the port on his computer where you would plug like the old school, like telephone yeah. DSL into, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, Doing he plugged nothing. it in. Yeah. He plugged it into his computer and then he took a piece of tape and he told the, the detainee, he's like, this is a lie detector and I will immediately be able to know if you're lying to me. And he taped it to the guy's chest, right on his chest hair. He like opened his shirt up and he taped it to the guy's chest. And meanwhile, the guy's like flexi cuffed to to the arms of the chair. And he's got this like tape on him, you know, and then he's like watching and he's like, he like angled, he like turns the laptop and he like angles it. He angles the laptop at him so you can see the screen. And so now this guy's like watching all these colors and patterns and stuff. Yeah. And he, and you know, he's playing like stone temple pilots on mute and all of this, like, you know, there's all these patterns and colors and stuff. And so then he like hits a button on the on the computer and then he's like okay and it pauses the music so then like the pattern like stops Mm -hmm. and it like flat lines and so then he's like asking this guy questions he's got his fingers on the on the play button and he's like asking him you know he's asking him some control questions is your name this 
did we capture you here? And then he started asking him like the hard questions. And then like, mm-hmm. he would push the button when he thought the guy was lying and the guy oh, would see the screen, screen and his <laughs> eyes would get really big. And he'd look at me and he'd look at the interrogator and he'd look at the screen and he, his, he was like, just mortified. And so then he'd push the button and he'd go, you're lying right now. And the guy started bawling and he's like, yes, I'm lying. I'm sorry. And then he like spilled his guts and like told the truth about everything. And it was, uh, that was the most awesome thing I think I ever watched was this guy got totally fucking mind fucked by windows media player (laughs) and a chunk of telephone cord. So yeah. So when, so when you, yeah. So when you see me smiling, it's like, because I have memories of stupid shit like that, that I'm like, Oh cool. Yeah. Like we, we used to fuck people's heads up with windows media player. You I mean, it used to fuck people. I mean, it's come out now and it's very public now. And I think there was a couple different documentaries on it on Netflix. And I think there's been movies made about it and TV shows and it's been in discussion and it was very well publicized about the enhanced interrogation programs and their lack of effectiveness in pulling out useful, truthful, actionable information that could be beneficial to the troops that are on the ground that are implementing it i don't know obviously i wasn't there i i've only been in one yeah i've only been in one situation where i've been the reason why somebody has disappeared and so i i have only that side of it i've never got to witness the other side of it so when somebody tells me they you know enhanced interrogation you see these photos at uh, where was that it was at abu gray where was it mm-hmm. where was that is that where it was the abu gray one so they had you know they had everything from the guys sit standing up on batteries to dogs to loud music to fucking who else god knows you guys are the only ones that know what really went on there and so I guess what my my question would be for that is those two individuals, I'm basing it off of very loose information I have, but the two individuals that introduced the inter- interrogation program to the rest of the military, they were basing it off of, of what? Of what information did they think that that would be the reasoning as to why some of these techniques would work? I mean, the, the times that I watched stuff like that work, it was very effective. The, the stuff that I saw was, um, that I witnessed personally was a lot of it was based on like, you know, I, I saw two waterboarding situations and the guys like broke immediately. Like they, they didn't last they at didn't all. Last. Um, no. Um, the situation with like, we never, I never saw a situation where we're like slapping people around and then like, you know, to ad- address the, you know, the people in the room that are like, that's torture. Well, no, well, it's we're not. not. We're not beating people with sticks. We're not hooking their genitals up to car batteries. We're not like ripping their fingernails off of pairs yeah. of pliers or beating that's them. Yeah, I, I I never saw anybody get slapped around. I never saw anybody like get physically abused. We would just, uh, you know, we would just, you know, mainly mind fuck them like we did with well, the like my, the guy did with the with the with the laptop, which I thought was brilliant. And he we got a good laugh about it afterwards. And he's like, you would be surprised how well this works. He's like. I've used this on like 10 or 15 detainees now. He's like, I don't even have to raise my voice and yell at him. I just show him this computer screen. And when I think they're lying about something, I tell them that they're lying. And then nine times out of, to- out of 10, they are lying about it. And they'll, they'll break and tell me the truth. And he's like, it's great. Thanks, yeah, Windows Media Player. Torture. Sponsored by Coca-Cola and Windows Media Player. It feels right. like the right thing. But there's right. people that, that distinguish torture as very different things. And I think... That's where you get the civilian population who doesn't quite 
maybe to understand to the extent of what they would do to another person if they actually got a hold of you or one of your family members. And you and I talked about this very briefly when we met the first time. And I remember telling you very quickly, and I didn't allude to all of the things that happened in that situation, but I just asked very briefly, I said, what was going on in 2009? And then you smirked and smiled at me. And then you said, you said something along the lines of, if I'm not mistaken, it was oh, those were the good old days. And uh, that was a different conversation. And what I alluded to was somebody did something in my fob and I happened to be the person to find out that he was brought in by someone else. And then I was the one that made him go away. And you turned and looked at me with this fucking, I've never seen a face like that. I mean, I mean, nobody should ever have to see your face, but they are now. So here we are. But I got to see this look on your face. And you said to me, and we had known each other at that point for, oh my God, not even 24 hours. And you looked at me and you said, why the fuck do you feel bad? Because if they would have gotten a hold of you, the shit they would have done to you would have been astronomical. And and I knew that and I'm aware of that. But for the people that listen to this and are like, Kelsey, you're cool with the fact that they tortured people and all of it. I'm not cool with that. What I'm not what I'm what I'm okay with is when somebody is taken and their whole intent is to destroy the lives of individuals I was with, then yeah, I'm kind of okay with somebody having a bag thrown over their head and their hands strapped and they're fucking gone. Because if they got a hold of me, what would they have done to me, Bishop? Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. Besides gang rape, which would have been the first one. Gang rape would definitely be the first one. Immediately. I mean, yeah, they would have. Yeah. Then they would have like probably drug you around the village behind a Jeep naked Mm -hmm. um, to to further humiliate you. Then there would probably Mm -hmm. been more rape. And then Mm -hmm. they might have just kept you for like a rape hostage, uh, depending on what their particular mood at the time was but if they really wanted to send a clear message that Mm -hmm. that uh they would have like after all of that happened they would probably get you in a little orange jumpsuit oh the jumpsuit right yeah because that's like very symbolistic and very humiliating and degrading in their in their belief system and so they would have put you well just you being in like a a prisoner it's symbolistic of you being a prisoner and being submissive and being Uh. under control so they would have like put you in the orange jumpsuit probably and then eventually like and they and and people are always like well why didn't why didn't that person fight for their life in the moment before they got thrown down and because they would what they would do is they would do this a series of times where they would randomly right. show up grab you take you in front of a camera read off of a piece of paper in arabic mm-hmm. beat you up a little bit then take you back and throw you back in your cage so with your head yeah, to fuck with your head. So they, they would do that, you know, a series of times until then they're like, okay, this is the time now. And so then, you know, people didn't know that it was coming and they just thought, okay, they're going to read some more shit, beat me up a little bit, and then they're going to take me back. Surprise on time number five, you actually get thrown down on the plastic and get your fucking head cut off on the internet. Right. So, so that's okay though. So people have issues with me waterboarding you and slapping you around and fucking hooking you up to a Microsoft computer to pretend you're lying. But, but what they don't get is that that's the shit they would have done to me. And they've done to several people. But yet, for some reason, when they tell us to go over and fight a war, God forbid that we smack somebody around. But if they would have got a hold of me, they would have been sitting there in Canada and the U.S. going, oh, that sucks. That's, oh, we have to get her. We have to figure out a way to get her out. That's, that's so unfortunate. That's so crazy that they would do that to her. It's like, well, 
why are you okay with that? And you're not outraged about that. You're not through the roof about that, but you guys are so, okay. you know, you're, you make such a big thing about a few people getting water pouring down their fucking face. I, I have real big issues with that. It hits a nerve with me. Well, there's people that unfortunately haven't, you know, I know. it's, they don't, they don't live a life of, they don't live a life of outside of their comfort zone. So it's really hard for them to imagine that there's other human beings. Like the, the way I like to, you know, describe it here in the United States is you have a, we have things there's, you know, mo- for the most part, so amazing here in the United States and everybody lives, even people that are poor. I mean, even our homeless are not getting rounded up and shot in the head and thrown in them in a, uh, you know, a mass grave, like they do in other parts of the world. Like we, we have, you know, we have a relatively good quality of life in the United States and, and so much so that a lot of people are completely out of touch with reality and the horrors and the cultures that happen globally around the world Mm -hmm. and how violent and horrible it is in certain parts of the Middle East and certain parts of Africa. Like there's places where I could take a, you know, any person being of Canadian or uh, U.S. nationality and drop them into a certain country in a certain village in a certain province and within 15 minutes, they're dead. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Or, or they're going through the process that we just described what would happen to mm-hmm. you if you, were, if you were caught. So mm-hmm. um, people are completely out of touch with reality and that there's humans out there that will perpetuate that kind of violence and that kind of evil. Hence the reason why we have to go after it and snuff it out. So, right. yeah, it's a, it's just, you know, I always take people's opinions with a grain of salt, you know, when oh, they, when they want to have discussions like that and discourse like that you know there's there's humans out there that you cannot negotiate with you cannot bargain with you cannot deal with you cannot influence with diplomacy in any way shape or form the only thing they will ever understand is violence yeah well it's because that's all they're taught too right and then so that it that's one thing when you're like well you go in and you try to i don't say fix these people or do those things but we were told that when we go look after women and kids it's like you're not they asked us very specifically like when you go out and you're dealing with the women and children, you're probably not going to encounter any violence. You're mostly going to encounter upset people and individuals. Well, tell that to the fucking God. I don't even know how old she would have been because they age so strangely over there because they're just, the women are just beat to fuck from get. And tell that to the woman who came at me with a pair of fucking scissors. They're just as angry. They're just as violent. They're just as dangerous. It doesn't, it doesn't make them any more compliant. They just don't, if they don't like you, they don't like you. And they show you in a way that we don't show people that we dislike here. We dislike somebody here. We keep it to ourselves. We let it go. These people, the people that I encountered stab you with things in the fucking face if they don't like the way you look at them or what you do or they put you on the ground or they they kick you right. in the face they, they don't have that same perspective and so it's difficult for a lot of my listeners when they I, I i get these comments i get the oh that's an intense podcast or that's an intense topic it's like to me it's not really that intense it's not really that difficult to understand the fact of the matter is we watch media, we watch the news or civilians watch the news, they watch media, and then they feed into whatever they're being told and don't question anything else. So God forbid that we don't actually know, you know, what's going on to whom and how it's happening. So there's this like softening of the idea of what the war is. There's this softening look of, well, we don't, we don't actually hurt people over there. We don't actually do anything over there. And when, and that's why when it came out that there was enhanced interrogation and torture going on, the world was shocked. They acted like, oh my God, God, how could that be happening during a war? Are you fucking kidding me? Right. 
Oh. Well, yeah, there's cult- culturally there's from what I've seen in the Middle East outside the, you know, metropolitan centers, there's a heavy lack of regard for human life, number one, and just a heavy lack of civility or understanding. Like, I mean, pretty much just go back to a tribal mentality in the 18th century and you've, you know, you've got your mind, you're starting to figure out what rural Afghanistan is. They live in mud huts with no electricity or running water still in a lot of these places. So their education level and their access to information via you know, the internet or whatever is non-existent. So they only have what they learned in the madrasa, uh, in the, you know, in the mosque, they only have, they, they only know what they, you know, they only know what they've been taught through the Quran and through whoever was wielding that book. And I've seen it being wielded for good and I've seen it being wielded much for evil. So depending on, you know, what level of education they got in their village. I mean, girls aren't even allowed to be educated. They're just allowed to make bread and wash laundry and take care of the kids and pop out kids is all. So, um, so yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a different place. It's just a different world. And so when you, when you finished up after that and you were kind of done with the Marines at, when was your last deployment with the Marines? What year was that? Oh, that was an 05. Uh, okay. Yeah. And when did you swap? And... and then when did you swap over to Blackwater? So 05. So what I did, so funny enough, like just to add on a bit of the tail end of my Marine career was I basically saw, um, I saw some amazing leadership and I saw a failure of leadership because of the way our cultural, you know, and policy system was set up in the Marine Corps. And it really rubbed me very much the wrong way because it was a institution that values at that point in time valued uh tradition way over eva- valuing progression and i just noticed that there was a lot of nuances that we were still trying to fight uh out of a playbook that didn't apply in the war on terror um and it was costing people their lives and costing you know like i i had crazy ideas about like i wanted to get like down in the grassroots level of like, you know, guerrilla warfare. And I kept like, you know, I'm like, why aren't we wearing civilian clothes? Why aren't we growing facial hair? Why aren't we, you know, driving around in dump trucks or box trucks or, or, you know, Toyotas or other vehicles. And why aren't we like mixing in with the population more and becoming a little bit more invisible. And, you know, I was pushing those ideas up to my chain of command and they were looking at me like I had a dick growing out of my forehead because it wasn't in the Marine Corps playbook. And not only that, we were conventional force and those ideas were very much of a special operations nature. And I was just kind of a fucking square peg trying to fit into a round hole in the Marine Corps. So I, you know, being in charge of the FID element, I got tasked with, you know, being the regimental FID liaison officer or the LNO for uh, this Iraqi brigade that uh, was our partner force for Fallujah. And, you know, I was basically with Colonel Jossam Mohammed and uh, we went out and, you know, secured a chunk of the battle space in Fallujah and operated right next to the Marine forces that were in the area. And I was in charge of coordinating uh, deconflicting battle space with, uh, with the Iraqis between the regiment and, and that Iraqi brigade. Um, Gotten a lot of firefights, um, had a lot of close calls and it was uh, 
it was six weeks of my life where I woke up every day and thought I was going to die that day. So it was heavy urban combat. It was basically the most, uh, it was the biggest, largest, it was the largest urban battle that the U.S. military had participated in since Way City in Vietnam in 1968. So it was house to house, um, you know, killing guys at bad breath distance. Um, so it was, it was a lot of that. And I can't, I had so many close calls. I, I spent up about eight and a half of my nine lives for sure, just in that city alone. So getting back, having that kind of level of experience and then getting back and seeing guys that were getting, you know, officers and senior staff that were getting put in leadership positions uh, with no combat experience um, and making really bad decisions regarding training and, you know, whatnot. It was, it was not, it was not an institution that I wanted to continue to stick around with because I just thought, you know, I just felt hobbled. I felt like I'm not going to reach my max potential here. And so I had friends that were at Naval Special Warfare that were SEALs that were had gotten out months before I did and were already doing the Blackwater thing. And so when I I'm was surprised on, they even were friends with you. You were Marine. I and I mean, and right. look at you. I mean, well, you know, we we were, you know, birds of the feather flock together, as I like to always tell mm-hmm. my Navy counterparts. Um, so I got out went on it, went on terminal leave. And right about that time, Hurricane Katrina was happening. And so my friends that was with Blackwater, like Blackwater got called down to help augment uh, Department of Homeland Security and other law enforcement agencies that were having a really hard time getting their hands around that whole problem that erupted because the uh, emergency management system, the EMS system, like completely collapsed. And it was, it was a fucking mess down there. Uh, People were starving people were like getting victimized by criminal elements that had come out of the woodwork and just, they knew the cops couldn't respond. And so they were just running amok in the city of New Orleans and doing horrible things to people. So I responded to that, got recruited by Blackwater by the project manager that was on site down there. Cause I just showed up to help my friends out, you know, while I was on right. terminal leave and I got recruited while I was there. And then I got invited to go to a selection. I went to a two week selection process. I passed. And then I got uh, put on a team and was one of the second, I was the second team in Afghanistan and at the end of 2005 for Blackwater. And then so explain Blackwater to what my, li- so my listeners know who you're talking about. So Blackwater was a company that was started by a fellow named Eric Prince, who was a former Navy SEAL. And it was a contracting entity to help. It was basically a private military company or a PMC that would contract law enforcement and, you know, former military guys to augment Department of Defense uh, initiatives globally. So that's the, that's basically the real polite way of saying. I was just going to say, it's, it's a bunch of ex-military dudes with beards that are really good with fucking guns and they go and they fuck shit up and protect you at the same time. That's more along the lines of what Blackwater sounds like to me. Right. Well, I mean, we, a lot of people are like, oh, those guys are fucking mercenaries. Well, no, I mean, no, a mercenary is somebody that will take money from anybody. Like if I was a guy that was like, oh, the cartel needs me to go train them. Cool. I'll take money from them. Oh, this terrorist group needs this money or, you know, needs me to go train them. I take money from them. Oh, you know, this military or that military, you know, I don't, that's, that's what a mercenary is. is somebody that will just go offer their services to whoever for money. We were all, you know, still very patriotic, still wanted to support Mm -hmm. the mission. All the contracts we worked on were U.S. Department of Defense sanctioned contracts. I had 
you know, I had a, you know, common access card, which is a military issued ID. I was a GS 15. I was on orders. I had an arming agreement. I had a leather letter of authorization from the, the commander. Passports and the whole yeah. shebang. Yeah. I had passports. So I was the whole time, you know, people that want to, you know, talk shit about Blackwater. Like we were all there on official U S government business. Anybody that right. says we weren't is, is lying about it. So, but I think the difference between Blackwater and the military, and I think there's uh, one significant uh, difference and I think it's important to acknowledge. And I, I kind of, kind of tend to agree more on the Blackwater side. I'm going to get shit for that. So here we go. Um, is that the difference between the military and Blackwater is proper training and proper payment. They pay you what you're worth and they pay you what you should be getting going and putting your life on the line, doing the types of jobs that you're doing. Now, the military, on the other hand, pays you a minimum wage with less training, with less weaponry, with no information, and then shove you into a situation where you're a sitting duck driving the same route every fucking day in the same uniform at the same time and hoping, oh, my God, shocker, we got hit by an IED. Holy fuck, I wonder why. So I, do, I don't have an issue with Blackwater. I love Blackwater. I love what they stand for. Um, there are situations that may have ar arisen, arisen, arose, arose with Blackwater that were questionable at best, but that's only because we, we, as I say, I guess I'm civilian now. We're my, are we considered civilians now? Yes, we're considered civilians Ew. now. Sorry, guys. That's just something I never thought I'd be weird. Look, I'm getting awkward already. Like my hands don't know what to do with themselves when I just <laughs> <laughs> immediately grab my shoulder. What am your I hands now? Down. Stop drinking caffeine. Put your hands down on the table. I have no more coffee because I can't get a coffee sponsor. This is what happens. This is what happens when Black Rifle won't sponsor me. Why? We can, we can work on that. We're, we're going to work on know, that because I might, I might know some people. I know. I mean, but I mean, I'm not even having caffeine. That's just what my hands do when I get uncomfortable. I'm saying, I think Blackwater is one of the only entities, especially in private contracting that it acknowledges what it takes to be um, someone of that caliber and what that person and individual should be paid in compensation for that. I don't disagree that there are things that as civilians we aren't privy to and that's fine but we shouldn't be privy to all of those things anyway because that is just the way that the enemy finds more out i think there are things that have to stay locked down and that we will never truly know unless we're involved but i do agree that the one thing and the reason why blackwater has been so successful is because they acknowledge and they pay their people properly for the, their lives that are being put on the line. And it's the same with the police department. It's the same with the military. They don't pay them enough. They pay them the least amount they possibly can. And they give them the least amount of training. They give them the least amount of weaponry and say, go do the job that we know you will not be able to do properly with the funding we'll give you. So I don't actually take issue with Blackwater at all. I never really have. I, I You and I had this conversation when I was reading, I was reading the book about about it before and I asked you about a specific incident and we we spoke about it privately and so I won't get into it but there are things that we obviously as civilian family we're not allowed to know I can't say that that makes me feel weird yeah I gotcha I'm in agreement and I had several people ask me they're like well what did you enjoy more did you enjoy your time with Blackwater contracting more or did you enjoy your military portion of your career more and I enjoyed I enjoyed my time with Blackwater way more because of all the things that you just espoused, which is, you know, the, um, you know, I felt like when sometimes when I was on active duty, we like, we didn't have a clear intention for what we were doing. Like we were walking around, you know, 
we were walking around as conventional forces in the battle space, which we, I feel like we had the assets and we, we could have done a better job with what we were doing. We just, I just, our commanders who had a serious lack of vision and experience, like we're just stuck in doing things the old way. And so I felt a lot of times we were, you know, we were doing things like presence patrols, which is basically like, Hey, go walk around in this village and do this kind of a movement to contact until you get, mm-hmm. until you run into an ambush and then react and deal with it. And I thought that was always a poor use of our time. And it was very demoralizing or, Hey, we're going to go do a mounted patrol and we're going to get in the, in a, in a non-armored high back Humvee. And we're going to drive around on these routes and hope that we don't get IED, um, which happened frequently. And it's how we lost a lot of people. And so, you know, we were just constantly, I always felt like we were always behind the eight ball with operating in the enemy's backyard with an invisible enemy that's like can blend into the local population. And, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was a, um, I just felt like we didn't have any initiative. Whereas fast forward to my Blackwater days, now I'm working with higher caliber people, primarily all special operations people or people of combat arms like me that had a lot of trigger time and a lot of experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, certain select law enforcement guys that were from special investigation units or from tactical teams. And so we had a, a, a very much higher caliber of people, but we were doing like our tar- we, were, we were doing targeting. We were taking the enemy by surprise. We were operating at nighttime. Um, we were putting together, you know, targeting and, and intelligence on people. And we very much had the upper hand in all of that, in all of those situations. Um, right. Whereas I felt like as a conventional Marine, like I was just a fucking walking target a lot of times. Well, it's and so you were though, it's because right. you were, you didn't, you didn't feel that because it, uh, of lack of, you know, you're pissed off at the military. You felt that because you are a fucking walking target. If you are a non-commissioned officer and you are of a lower rank, number one, this isn't just an American thing. This is a Canadian thing. This is a British thing. This is an Australian army. This is any NATO forces that are being put in these countries. Very rarely are anybody below a, if you're lucky, sergeant level being told absolutely fucking anything about anything that you're doing. You, you, are, you are meant to react and be a beautiful sitting target in order to create, I guess, firefights or whatever, draw the enemy out, but they use human 18 year old kids, sometimes 17 and send them overseas and say, we're gonna let you just go walk out, just hang out and hope you don't get fucked up. Like that to me seems so wrong. Yes, yes. And so, yeah, it's basically what you're saying about, you know, Blackwater. I, so I got to this institution, passed their selection process and all their vetting, got inside got put on a team and now all of a sudden I'm surrounded by these way higher caliber people. I'm getting paid very well. Um, you know, you, I think I was making like 45 or $50,000 as a Marine Sergeant. And now all of a sudden, like I'm making 180 to $220,000 a year as a contractor. Yeah, you're six figures. Big guy. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, you know, I got to a point where you know, guys from special unit, special missions units were getting out and coming to our organization and they were our team leaders or assistant team leaders and, you know, fantastic guys, but I got offered because we would do joint operations with special operations units all the time to augment them or work with them. Um, and I got invited on several occasions to come back in the U S military and go through a selection process and, Co to a special mission unit. You know, I was getting invited to special mm-hmm. mission unit selection. And I was like, I, I was like, well, you guys are coming to where I'm at and I'm getting paid right. really great money. 
And I get to grow my beard out. I get to dress indigenous. I get to use whatever weapon system that I want to. I get to tailor all my gear and equipment towards the mission that I'm doing. I get to plan and operate and I get to plan and execute my missions without some stupid fuck officer sitting there with his hands in his pockets, demanding a fucking PowerPoint presentation on a time sensitive target that we have to go hit right fucking now, or we're going to miss the guy. Um, You know, and this, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any of that shit to contend with or deal with. So I always felt like going, going back into the military and going to a selection process and going to one of these units was, I felt like it was going backwards because I'm like, you guys are here. Like, (laughs) why? Why? Okay. So let me get this straight. Like your guys are coming to us to work with us. They're getting off active duty or they're retiring and they're coming to work on our teams. Mm -hmm. And you want me to go back in the U S military, go through a selection process, get in your unit to then do the same job that I'm doing right now, but with just more freedom and more pay. Right. So it didn't, it didn't, it didn't add up to me at all on that. So I didn't pursue any of those other opportunities because I was happy where I was at. So does, does, yeah, did so Blackwater, I, and I, I don't know if you have this answer. I know I keep cutting you off, but I feel like if I don't, you're just going to never shut the fuck up. So I'm just going to keep interrupting <laughs> you. Um, I mean, but that's you. So did, did Blackwater, and I don't know if you know the, know the answer to this, did Blackwater ever recruit any women or is that a, like, and obviously the reason I ask is because you and I both know there are some, and I say some, because it's very, very rare that a woman that has been in the military that is, and I guess it's maybe because of lack of opportunity or training or whatever the fuck you want to call it. I'm not going off of a women versus men thing. Cause I really think it's the best person for the job. So if nobody has ever been hired, there's a reason for it. They haven't met the standard. And I think you should have to meet the standard, but I think there's, there is some value in having female contractors, depending on the type of op or situation protection unit, whatever it may be. But did you ever see any of that with Blackwater? Yes, but we never had any of them at that time, at that point in time, none of them were embedded with our operational teams. Right. Um, they were always working in staff or support or intelligence analyzation, you know, to mm-hmm. analyze intel. They were always working in that capacity. Like we never had during my time, we never had a, a female. Now that said, people get all up in arms these days about like women going to buds or women going to ranger school or women going whatever. to, you know, Marine infantry officers course, whatever, like. I laugh about that shit because women definitely have a role and they have capabilities outside of what men are capable of um, in certain roles and capacities within special operations. Now, do I think realistically women need to be at the conventional grunt level and in a fighting hole next to a dude in a conventional role? No, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's a good idea um, to put members of the opposite sex into a, into a, into a situation like that. However, women do extremely well and excel very, very much so in special operations capacity. So like I laugh at, you know, these guys that are getting upset because women are now passing ranger school or whatever. Like have they passed. I think there was one. Yeah, I think there's been two or three now. We, oh, okay. we have, we, we've been using women in a special operations capacity for since world war ii since oss the oss right. was using female spies and yes. female very successfully uh, too yeah female operatives that were conducting sabotage missions they were assassinating nazi officers um because they could seduce them they could go to the bar they could speak a little french to this guy they could like get him drunk they could get him 
you know, out of the bar and then get him into a, a bed and then slit his throat or pull a Luger out from underneath the pillow and put it in his eye socket and blow his head mm -hmm. off. So we've been using women for special operations roles uh, and in the intelligence community for since World War II. So mm -hmm. everybody needs to basically chill the fuck out. Like women right. have a, a very specific capability and are really great at certain facets of special operations. Um, we use them for cultural support teams, I think, or that's what we call them. And I think that you, you know, had the opportunity to do a lot of that where, you know, women were needed at the, you know, to go onto a raid location and corral the women and the children and deal with the women and children because of the cultural nuances with working with partner forces. Uh, if you want to maintain a good rapport with your partner force and you're conducting a raid, the last thing you want to do is piss those locals and your partner force off by going in there as men and manhandling women uh, where that's a culturally, very culturally sensitive thing. So, uh, you know, women were utilized in a cultural support team capacity, which was just a fancy way of saying, hey, here's a chick in the stack that has, you know, been trained up to snuff and she's going to go in and she's going to marshal and handle the women and children on the target and then also do battlefield interrogation and see what kind of intelligence she can pull because she's going to be able to establish a quick rapport being female with the females that are in on the on the target place and she's going to be able to calm them and deal with the children uh in a much uh, in a much more effective capacity than you know a man could ever do so um i know that they've been used very successfully uh for that in the war on terror i like how you say they it's real fun for me this is going to be a good one i'm going to get a lot for I love this one. This is gonna be fun. Um, yeah, when you say a cultural attache in that sense, I don't, everything you just described as to what that means is not at all what I did. Um, so it's very interesting to see that that's how your perception of what that job looks like. Um, realistically, that's not at all what that is for us, for women. I mean, for in my, in my stance, that was not at all what it was. It was very much, it was very much, here's Alpha Bravo Charlie, <laughs> you're going to go between those three units for the next week and we're going to put you on foot and then we're, you're going to kick the door in some days if you feel like it and then you're going to take them out and then you're going to put straps on them and sit them down with a bag over their head and then you're going to search babies and then you're going to find any piece of evidence that they're hiding in their hair or between their legs or under their boobs or in their burkas while they're high on drugs stabbing you with scissors and grabbing at your grenades and then you're going to calmly and gently take anything you find and respectfully i'm doing the biggest air quotes of my fucking life right now <laughs> respectfully place their jewelry and other items on the ground in front of them so they know you didn't steal them but really what that looks like is i'm going to put you in a fucking chokehold i'm going to put you on the ground i'm going to search you because you don't listen and you're not calming down and then when you take a quran and throw it at my face i'm going to chuck it at the fucking wall because i've got no respect for the fact that you just kicked my legs out from underneath me and there's 12 of you in one room and then i have to deal with your screaming baby and you don't like me touching it of course you don't like me touching it i shouldn't fucking be here in the first place this right. is ridiculous so no and then the whole i my favorite thing they said was because my maiden name is Burns, so I'm not a Burns anymore. But it would be like do need, Burns. Do you, need, or... do you need to like? Do you need to like? Fucking drink drives me nuts. No, it drives me nuts. Since, did no, you just have me PTSD? <laughs> it drives me nuts. Because <laughs> it, it does. Because the only thing they would say I can't do is don't go on the roof. Because we only have one of you. So medics, right. dog handler, female, don't go on the roof. Don't kick the doors open because you'll be the first in. We don't want you to blow up because you're kind of useful, I guess, because you have a vagina. And number two, 
Right. Don't shoot at anybody in the back. So then what I decided to do with that was I'm going to go on the roof. I'm going to kick the doors in and I'm going to shoot. I'm going to put you down and I'm going to stand on top of you and shoot over you. So, I mean, I'm excited to read your book. When does this, when, when does that happen? I don't know. I think you have a copy actually shithead. I only had a copy for months. You know, what's really fucked up is Griff, Igay, Tim, and you have all had copies. Within the first week of them having those copies, I got phone calls going, hey, Kelsey, I was, it's not what I expected, but it's actually, I, I'm happy that's not, it's not what I expected. But it's okay. You know what? It's okay. Bishop, you do you, brother. We all know you do you. We all know I mean, how your life is. You're too busy over there taking down Instagram models, being a thirsty well, ass I need bitch. To, <laughs> like, I, need to, just, I need to, I need to basically get a hard copy because that's how I read books. Really? Because I had another individual that I was just speaking with who was like, you know what, Kels? You know what? We're just glad to even have an opportunity to talk to you. We'll print it off for that individual for you and we'll let him read it that way. That's what I got told on the other call. That's what was happening. That's how much they were like, you know what? Send me one. His wife did it for him. I've been reading this. This is what I've been reading. Oh, you mean this one right here? Mm Mm-hmm. The good fucking design advice book. Yeah, I know. I love these guys. We these guys are them. rad. The you know what I I love everything about this book, except for the silver print on the white paper because my old man eyes are starting to fail, and I'm like, well, that's your fault. squinting. I'm starting to squint a lot. Well, then get. But it's cataract. a great book. It's a fantastic well, book. You know, I'm, I'm gonna cut that. To I'm gonna. I'm going to cut it and I'm going to edit it so that it you're like, I'm going to read your book. And then it's going to, it's a fantastic book. It's a great <laughs> book. <laughs> cut, out the whole... cut it, cut and edit it. <laughs> no, but I, it's uh, the reason I bring up the female thing is honestly, because I'm in a, I'm in a precarious position One, I am one. So, and I'm in one of these bodies for the rest of my existence. And I'm in a time where um women are being told that they can and should be able to do everything and it's a hard stance to be in uh because i know what it takes to do that job your job uh not because i've done it but because i've seen the extent in which the training the qualifications the level of go fast the level of weapon handling and the sheer ability to overtake another human being and the size capacity that i am at and so how tall are you? Six, two? Three on a good day. On a good day. Yeah. And yeah. You, that, those are few and far between right now for your brother. So, right. So you're, yeah. So I'm getting the, fewer. I know. So, but that's what I'm trying to explain to people. It's hard because I just read recently, uh, I, I'll find out the article and I'll, I'll post it afterwards. Um, I want to say it was in the military times or something along that, but it was a conversation about how the new, rules that were coming out they were having a a very very small subset of individuals individuals making it through the marine corps infantry uh, qualification just the physical qualification to then move on and they were seeing a very they hoped for a higher percentage to pass on but it doesn't look like that's happening and um i'm not sure how accurate that is so i will obviously research some more afterwards but i know they're they were having issues with women being able to pass the qualifications um and then you get the other side of the flip coin where all the men are saying well don't lower the standards because you're that person in the foxhole with them you're the one that's in the firefight you're the one that's watching and helping that individual 
So it's, it's a hard position to be in because I understand both, but I, I lean towards more of the, I don't want to say the male side, but only because I've been in those situations where it has been a life and death situation. And if I had another female that was my size, so 110 pounds, five foot covered in, you know, 60 pounds of kit. Frankly, if somebody got a hold of me when I was overseas and tried to, to actually try and take me, there was not much I could do because my kit was so fucking big on my body that when my arms were out without an exaggeration, if you're watching with all of the mags and I would sit like this, that I had no, I couldn't reach left hand to, to right pocket. There was none of that happening. So, I mean, how realistic is it to send special operators who can't even reach their fucking right arm over to grab another mag because their kit's so improperly sized or it's not nothing to do with my own abilities. If my abilities are there and I still can't perform because of size, I mean, there's no, it's nothing to do with female or male. A shorter guy is not going to be able to perform as well as a six foot two guy who has length and height and weight behind any sort of training. It's just not realistic. And I think that's a it's a touchy subject and I'm going to get a lot of shit for that, but I think it's true. And I think if you look at it realistically and you look at it from an actual operational standpoint, I don't think that's wrong. I think women can do it if women are fucking 5'11 and beast tanks that can carry a hundred pounds on their back. I just think that's more, more realistic to think that every woman can do it. Cause that's not true. I just don't think that's true. Well, and let's not get crazy because like not every woman wants to do that. Let's like look well, at the percentage also, of numbers where women, let's look at how many women actually want to do that job. Yeah. There's not very many. So it takes a special kind of woman to even want to go do, excuse me, go do that job. So, I mean. A small subset at that point, you're already narrowing it down drastically. Yeah. And that's why, that's why we're in agreement on like one, you can't adjust the physical standards one because physical standards are in place because you have to be at a certain level to conduct the job like you have to have, be at a certain level of physicality in size and weight and strength to execute the job effectively for all the things that you just said and also how am i going to have respect for you if you get promoted above me and now you're my leader but now you can't like haul the same weight that i can haul or you can't you can't you can't lead or you can't lead by example and you can't set the example, which are two very important facets of leadership at the small unit level, if you can't pass the same physical standards as, as, as I can. So mm -hmm. th that's why, that's why it's my belief that we just, you know, continue to use women in a very niche special operations role, because I mean, to your point, I, th I think there's only been one woman, mm -hmm. maybe two that have passed a uh, Marine infantry officers course two maybe three that have passed ranger school i don't think still to this to this day i don't know and i don't think that any woman has passed buds no no i no I, i'm pretty sure they haven't but i know they're the i know the marine officer because it was all over the news when she was about to graduate it was fucking at least up here we were seeing it everywhere right before right. she was about to graduate they put out this thing there's they were saying you know there was two females that that went forward one is about to graduate for the first time but obviously that i don't know why the fuck they would announce that in the first place because now you're just putting a fucking target on her back right well i mean she put a target on her back herself by volunteering to go do that in you know in, in the current no, political mean, climate i mean in the sense of 
they're not making a big deal about Rangers graduating every week and talking about who they are and where they're from and who their fucking families are and how she was able to like, it's just, just shut up about it. Just if you're going to integrate them, integrate them quietly. Don't make it this big press political thing. Let it be what it is. Oh, but come on, you know that that's what drives everything these days is the big, the big media story. The big media spin is what pushes everything these days. So I know, but it makes it dangerous. It makes it dangerous. It just, it, it makes it a dangerous situation. I know there was in Canada, we had one, she passed away. I want to say in 2007, Nicola Goddard, Captain Nicola Goddard. She was a artillery crew. She got killed at the white schoolhouse attack. I don't know if you ever heard about that. Mm -mm in afghanistan uh it was a canadian and it was like an ambush i don't know the ins and out of ins and outs of it but that was the first time i remember hearing about what artillery actually was and she was a foo and she was in a lav and they hit a schoolhouse and they got ambushed and she was the first female Ooh, i think she was the first female to die overseas but she because in canada we allow armored infantry foo and i think we oh engineers combat engineers to be like women to be on the front lines and do those things so it was a matter of time but i know on my deployment we had a van du a female infantry she was driving a t-lav or a lav at the time and out of no fault of her own they hid an ied and she passed away so then we had another female like combat arms type woman so there's very few that deploy and then there's very few that seem to die fortunately but the, the the they make such a big deal about this women getting injured and this women and, and all this happening, but it's only because there's like a handful and the media loves, loves it. And it drives me up the fucking wall and I'm going to move away from this goddamn topic. Cause I'm going to get annoyed. Um, so when you, so in Blackwater, they had no women that you knew of that were at that point when you were in from 2000, where you Blackwater 2005 to when? Uh, 2010 was my last deployment. How many deployments with them did you end up doing? I did five deployments with uh, Blackwater from 05 to 10. Uh, they ranged in length and duration. Like some of them were four months, some of them were six months. My longest deployment with Blackwater was eight months. Um, and then my final, my last uh, deployment, I was contracted uh, to be a uh, basically a, tra- a, a mobile training team and, and area advisory. Uh, an AOR advisor for uh, for a JSOC task force. So I got privately, just me, separate of Blackwater, got contracted by USASOC to go attach to a forward deployed JSOC element and be on on site with them to do training training and area advisory work because they were working in an area that I had had a lot of deployments and experience in, and it was their first mm-hmm. time there. So I got contracted to do that briefly for. That was my last appointment uh, in 2010. And I came back from that and decided to move on in life. So what are you doing now? What would you move on to? I mean, if you got out in 2010, that's 11 years ago. So what are you up to now? Or so, have you been up to? Yeah. So now basically I had to find a new, a new, uh, <laughs> I had to, I had to come up with a new job because, you know, nine deployment, nine, nine deployments uh, later, the, bullets flying past my head. I just knew that things were, you know, if I continue to go down that road, the the chances of, of something bad happening just exponentially increase with the more time that you spend in a hostile environment. So, uh, and plus I was burned out. So I needed a break um, because unlike, you know, 
the military, like you usually have, when you come back from a deployment, you usually have, depending on what unit it is, you have an 18, a 12 to 18 month training cycle and turn time to where you deploy, you come back, you have time off with your families for a certain amount of time. Uh, then you conduct some sustainment training, uh, get your proficiency quals done. Then you go into unit training and you do a big unit training workup. And then you have more vacation time with your family. And then you usually launch out on a deployment again. And that's that, that time is usually 12 to 18 months, depending on what your unit you're in. Whereas with Blackwater, it was, it was, it was rapid turn. Like it was a quick turn. I had a situation where I came back from a deployment and literally turned in 24 hours and went back on another four month deployment. So it was, um, you know, and that's the way it was like, you would come home with Blackwater for four months, then you would deploy for four months, then you'd come home or you would deploy, then come home. And then sometimes you'd be home for four months or you'd be home for two months or you'd be home for a month. And then you'd go back for six months. So it, it was, we had a very quick rapid turn where, you know, you didn't have any time off. So I was very much burned out and, you know, needed, needed something new in life. So I um, decided to get into product development and training. I conducted training for, from 2000, probably 2004 in between deployments, I was training law enforcement, military, special operations teams, and like weapons and tactics stuff. Um, and so did that. But when I quit, I continued to do training for like another three years. Um, did some more training with a sensitive program through NAK called the loan operator program in 2017, where I was teaching low visibility stuff, combatives, blade work, um, low light, uh, low visibility raid stuff. And I did that briefly. And then I, my body wore out finally and caught up with me and I ruptured a knee tendon or I blew my uh, patellar ligament during a class with a special forces unit and had to basically undergo surgery and went like 14 month, like recovery time on that. So I started going to school, went to design school while I was recovering and then got into product development and have been doing, I still teach every once in a while. Um, but I primarily have just been doing product development, started my own company called Orion design group and, or ODG USA is we're more, uh, informally known in the industry and have been doing uh, product development with that for a long time, either getting contracted as a consultant for a larger companies uh, to do work. Like I've done stuff with uh, Surefire. I've done stuff with Smith Optics, with 511 Tactical, with Daniel Defense, uh, either doing product development or media related stuff. So I've been doing that for a number of years and, and enjoying that ride. And now I'm just still Grow, now I'm now I'm more focused on growing growing my company and developing our our own product line, and I've gotten into um, hard goods recently. So I've got a new weapon light design that I'm about to drop. That's going to happen here probably within the next thirty days or so. So that's what that's what I've been doing in the meantime. Is I've really shifted my focus from you know the old grouchy retired guy to you know the the you know from the operational theater to working on um, product development for guys in the community, you know, basically still along that level of developing product solutions and better gear solutions for guys that are still going out and kicking doors. What is it, what is it like going back to, uh, did you go to a traditional university or was this like something you did online when you, when you, yeah, back so I went to, yeah, so it was a funny, 
kind of a weird, funny thing. And we never really got to dive into our, we never got to dive into our whole, like we, we got sucked we down the rabbit hole. You've got time. Don't worry. Don't worry. Well, we, we, we didn't get to get sucked down the ayahuasca rabbit hole, but basically what happened was, um, in, uh, 2014, I'd been trying to scale my company and been getting really, I was getting really burned out because I was trying to figure out social media and a bunch of things that I wasn't really good at to try and scale the company. And so what had happened was I had a bad business partner um, and we just needed to, we needed to break ties and I needed, I needed something new because I was grinding really hard and, and I felt like I was spinning my tires in the mud, not going anywhere mm -hmm. with uh, developing my own brand, growing my own brand, my own product line. And I felt deficient in certain skill sets, like as a designer. And I felt like more of a good idea fairy than a designer because all of the stuff mm -hmm. that I'd done prior to that with consulting with the larger companies to develop product, like I was showing up and I was talking to a designer about what the end user would want, what features you'd want. And then a lot of times I was coming up with some pretty creative solutions outside of like what a normal good idea fairy would come up with and say, oh, well, I needed to do this, this, and this, and I need it made out of this, go make it happen. And then they just immediately were, I would get a little bit more intimate with the engineering and with the design team and I would nerd out on things and I would help shape the aesthetics and the form and I would help like come up with more functional user features. And so I was a little bit deeper into it. So I knew I had some like design talent and was even told that on a couple of occasions by engineers and by you know des other designers that had been formally trained in it. Um, but I just felt deficient and I was burned out. So I went, uh, I remember there was a period of time where I was, I was having dreams about, I, I knew I needed a change and I knew I was looking at school, the potential of school. Uh, and I was having these, I started having these dreams about um, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge and about San Francisco. And there was this like particular view of the bridge that I kept like having in my dreams. And I couldn't figure out why I was having this big energetic draw to San Francisco for some reason. I couldn't figure it out. And I was having dreams about it. And as time went on, like, at one point I was like, I got on and I, I wanted to research universities to go through to get formally trained in, in industrial design. Mm -hmm. And so I Google, I'm sitting in my laptop and I Google it. Best design schools in the US. Boom, top three. Number three is uh, Academy of Art University in San Francisco. So I'm like, you know, reading through the, the results and number three, there it is, San Francisco. And that's when, you know, the little light bulb came on and I was like, Oh, San Francisco. Hmm. Interesting. So then I ignored that. I ignored that little like omen, that breadcrumb. That I was little like, line. No. Yeah. And I kept, so I kept doing my thing. And then I finally um, got to the point where I was, was, I was having a bad day and I was frustrated. And so I was like, well, let's look at that university. So I jumped back on and I like got on their website and sure enough, like the first thing on their landing pages is, is you know, veterans welcome. We take GI bill, you know, and like yellow ribbon school. And it had this like really <laughs> cool picture of a, you know, guy in his kit with his M4. And, and I was like, oh man, okay. All right, universe. I hear you. I'm listening, but I still kind of fucked it off. And I was like, okay, whatever. And so I went back to work. And so then like another year had gone by and I was like, all right, well, fuck, let's order a catalog from them so I can like look at their course offerings and like look at the degree path and see what the industrial 
design path looks like. So I ordered a catalog and it came in. Because you're 96 and can't just read anything off of a screen. All of my listeners have figured out. <clears throat> Correct. I also wanted to see the, I also wanted to see like the course breakdown in, in, in a more intimate way because it wasn't offered on the website. So oh, okay. I, I wanted, so I got like it, the, the course catalog showed up as beautiful as wrapped in plastic and it was like as thick as this guy, you know, and uh, it shows up and hits my mailbox and I get it and I look at it and it's wrapped in plastic and I threw it up on the, I threw it up on a shelf and got distracted and then ended up continuing with work for like another month. Mm -hmm. And then I had another situation where I was like frustrated with work and I was like, okay, fuck man, I'm, I'm so burned out. And I, I remember sitting down, I was like, I'm taking the day off. So I went for a run and then the day off and no one could tell me otherwise. Yeah. So I went, I, I like worked like 15 days in a row or something like that. And so I, I was like, I'm fucking burned out. I'm done. I need, I'm fried. So I went for a run to clear my head went and grabbed a six pack of beer from the liquor store, came back, cracked open a beer. And I saw that catalog sitting there. So I pulled it down and ripped the plastic off of it. And I open it up and like cover to cover, there's a beautiful, gorgeous picture of the Golden Gate Bridge, the same view, the same kind of setting that I'd been seeing in my dreams. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fuck, okay, universe, got it. Got I'm it. supposed to go to this school, message received. And so I got online immediately because I was so floored by that photograph. I was like, that is what I've been seeing. That's exactly right. what I've been seeing in my dream. I'm like, fuck, fine. So I get online and I schedule a, a, a campus visit. And then I go and I visit the campus and I check it out. And then I make plans to, I love the campus. I love the city. Got to go all over the city and, you know, get a good idea of, you know, what, what, life is like in downtown San Francisco and loved it. And so I'm like, okay, cool. This is the right thing at the right time for me. So I shut everything down with my company and went to school for three years and bounced back and forth between San Francisco and Jackson, Wyoming, which was a good, which I felt was like super awesome. Cause I was getting the best of both worlds. Like good balance. Really, yeah, I was really loving the cultural aspects and like being in the nerve center of design and art and design um and technology really for the us and loved how the vibe in the city and it was just awesome the culture the people that i met there all the friends that i made while i was there at school it was fantastic but right about the time i started getting angsty about like and claustrophobic with being in a city i was wrapping up my semester i was turning in my final and then i was jumping in my truck and i was off back to wyoming and if it was, you know, in between our semester, spring and fall semester, I was coming back to uh, Jackson. I was snowboarding. I was relaxing. I was having Christmas with my family and with my son. And then I was, you know, had six, eight weeks off. And then we would bounce back to spring semester in, mm -hmm. and I'd roll back to the city and I'd hit spring semester and then do spring semester. And then right about the time that I'm like getting annoyed with the city and getting annoyed with people, I'm like, cool, turn in my final back in the truck back to Jackson, yeah. spend the whole summer in Jackson, like camping, you know, fishing, outside, trail running, mountain biking, you know, getting my, getting my outdoor fix. And then, you know, wash, rinse, repeat on that for three years. And then, uh, got to the point where I know, you know, the clock, the clock starts ticking in my mind. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I finally through three years of school 
you know, acquired the technical skills that I was deficient in. Like now I understand design process better. I understand design gates better. I understand like, you know, the reason that you are, you do so much extensive research in the marketplace and then for materials and then like, you know, writing a, a business, a business case around a, a product and why it's going to be relevant and be successful, mm-hmm. uh, doing all of that research, how to use a laser cutter, how to use Adobe creative suite, how to, you know, how to do better material selection and understand materials, better material sourcing, how to use a 3d printer, how to use, you know, computer aided draft software. So you can like 3d model things, you know, how to use AutoCAD and SolidWorks and, you know, fusion and all those programs and really just have a better, more well-rounded concept of design in general and have all those technical skill sets. So now I get back to school and I I started going to school when I was 38, which was really difficult at times because I found myself Mm -hmm. in situations where, you know, after doing 13 years of combat arms and special operations and being in a situation now where you are in a classroom in San Francisco with you know, people Woke that don't 19 have, year olds? I mean, the 19 and 20 year olds, the 19 to 22 year olds that I was with didn't bother me. Um, it was, uh, it was primarily my instructors that were uh, annoying to me because they were always like, you can't do that. You can't, you can't do that. You know, in my most <laughs> nasally annoying instructor voice, you can't do that. And I'd always be like, why not? You know? And yeah. it was hard for me to really sit there and listen to some professors who sucked and were not great at their job that were there that were tenured they're taking you know they're and they're teaching these kids and I remember several times that I heard you know instructors or you know these professors say well you know out in industry this is how it is and you know I just came from industry right at least from my particular industry and had executed contracts you know with fortune 500 companies to bring products to market. And I'm like, that's not at all how that, and I'm thinking to myself, that's not how any of that works, you know? And they were basically putting out, you know, bad 20 year old antiquated information to these college students that I'm not like, no, that's not, that's not how any of this works. Um, And then what I noticed is that there was a distinct divide between the art side of the house, you know, because they had this thing where they had this Venn diagram and it was, you know, it was a Venn diagram of like industrial design and it's a culmination of art, business and um, design, you know, artistic Mm -hmm. design. And what I noticed is that they went very, very heavy on the art. Like they loved, if you could like sketch extremely beautiful, you know, if you could, if you could sketch and draw beautifully, if you could render things in Photoshop and do composites and like build these like really amazing, beautiful pieces of art. And to me, it was never about the art. It was about the product. It's about the end state. It's not about like the, 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 the art is the ideation part. And yes, you know, that's important. And what I noticed is they were training these kids to be more artists instead of, you know, makers. And that's mm-hmm. where I kind of like drew the line. And I'm like, there's a difference between being a maker and being a, an artist, or as I like to refer, refer to them as studio gangsters, you know, these, these kids that will graduate and they will go work in these high level design firms and all of they do is create beautiful artistic concepts and these beautiful visually stunning like artboards. And then they will pass them off to the product line manager or the product developer who will then take them, take that artwork. And then they outsource it overseas. They send those drawings and that artwork mm-hmm. over to 
a design house in China, where right. then the Chinese take that and then they will build based off that visual, you know, artwork, they'll build a tech pack with all the specs on it. And then they will build a first article and they'll send that back for testing and approval. And then if it's, if it passes that, then they send that back and they're like, yeah, push the production button on that. And then they create however many products and take those to market. And I just thought that that was so shitty and so hands-off with what my ideas of being a maker or a designer are. Like I want to touch and taste and feel that thing all the way from the first sketch that I put on a piece of paper all the way until I get that first prototype in my hand. And I want to be involved and intimate in that whole process. And we've just, we've lost that because we've outsourced all of our design and all of our manufacturing capability in this country. So I'm, you know, I started seeing this in school and then I looked at my watch and I'm like, dude, you're 42. You're going to be 46 before you get your undergrad degree here because the course of study requires way more credit. Like it's actually, you have to go to school to get your undergrad in, in industrial design for like five years as opposed to four years because there's Mm -hmm. so many additional things that you need to have in your yeah in your quiver to be you know to get your undergrad your bfa in uh in industrial design and it's a really tough course of study and it only has a 90 or it has a has a really high attrition rate i think it's in between 80 and 90 percent of people that start on the industrial design undergrad Mm -hmm. path do not finish it so and i was one of those you know i'm like i think i'm like I'm like two, two semesters away or I'm a semester away from my associate's degree in industrial design, but having the experience that I had running my own company and being a maker and like doing all the consulting that I did with all of the companies Mm -hmm. gave me enough experience to where once I went to school and did three years at school and got those, got those technical skills that I needed, like how to run a laser cutter, how to Mm -hmm. do 3d modeling, how to run a 3d printer. It gave me all of that. And I was able to like, look at my watch and be like, okay, well, I think I'm ready to, I think I'm ready to now go back out, restart my company. And, and I have, and it it was good. And I don't, I don't regret that. I mean, maybe someday when I'm old and bored and have some downtime on my hands, I'll sit and I'll finish that, you know, bit of my A degree and I'll get that associate's piece of paper and put it up on the wall. I was just going to say that. How, how important is it to you to have that piece of paper? Because at the end of the day, if you have the tools, you know what you're doing and you, and you surpass the expectations like if you're already having professors tell you that that's not how it works and you explicitly know this is how it works in the industry and you've already got those technical skills what the hell is the point of paying another 40 50 60 grand so that they can then print off a piece of paper with your name on it i don't quite understand that concept or that what that willingness to sit for another x amount of time just to say that you have a piece of paper if you have a company that's more than successful and you're able to create products and you're able to make them in the united states or in north america for or wherever and you're able to do it in an effective manner what is the point the point is my own pride and my own ego being like you didn't finish that go back and finish it well, that's basically I'm it. like yeah, but I'm also like three three credits away from finishing an associative arts degree in criminology. And guess what? Fun fact, government wouldn't let me be a cop. Government won't let me be a paramedic. And the government won't let me do anything in that world. So what the fuck is the point? Correct. Yeah. You, you so don't need it. Yeah, you're right. Um, I don't I need it. And I, right. and I I mean, I wouldn't get that. Let's not get carried I think, away. Well, well, let's get carried away. You know, I'm right. I, I mean, not really. In this particular nope. instance, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I would agree that, yes, I I realized that I didn't need to stick around and finish my undergrad to be successful, which is proven true. And so um, to your point, yes, I'm going to 
sit around and it's more important to me to see beautiful products that, you know, mm -hmm. I can take things out of my head uh, and make them into products that then I can kick back into my community, uh, you know, where I came from and, you know, enhance the quality of, you know, somebody else's life through their gear, because as we all know, we get a lot of times get issued gear built by the lowest bidder and stuff that doesn't make any sense. That's made by an engineer that has no idea like what we do or the other kinds of gear that are integrated in our, in our gear suite, um, and how they should, you know, complement each other and whatnot. And a lot of times too, with government acquisition and procurement, at least here in the United States, the guys that are choosing the gear for the operators, mm -hmm. like, yes, there are force mod shops that will, you know, handle, you know, urgent need statements and they will handle, you know, developing certain gear for certain things. But a lot of times, like on the larger levels and mainly for conventional forces and some special operations units, you've got guys, I mean, specifically if I'm going to speak about the Marine Corps, like there's a whole shop called Marcor Syscom and you've got civilians and a lot of times staff and officers that are from support MOSs that have no fucking clue what infantry Marines should be carrying for gear and have these, all these wild ideas and want to waste all this money on developing, you know, shit for, you know, guys that, you know, wear that kit, carry that every day of their career. And a lot of times we get issued bullshit and it makes me laugh because the Marine Corps and the press, like I keep a good, I, I keep a good eyeball because it's my, you know, in my lane of what the Marine Corps has been doing for, you know, for gear as of late. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they finally have just now got dual tube night vision goggles, which have been around in the special operations community. And then, you know, at the higher levels of, the, you know, of, you know, special mission units have been using those since like 2004, 2005, maybe, maybe sooner, maybe earlier than that. Like at we, least they were issuing you anything. When we got to Afghanistan, we got to fall ramrod and I stepped up at mm, eight o'clock at night to do my four hour first OP shift. We had no fucking NBGs, nothing, zero, this, nothing. We were in the middle of the main one district with the smallest fob, with nothing else. And I had to get on the radio and beg for a unit from Texas to let us use a pair of NVGs so that I could see five feet in fucking front of me. Correct. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me to hear stories like that, um, especially in support units. The, uh, yeah, so it's, it's crazy to me to watch like the Marine Corps. Now they're like, oh, we're putting suppressors on gun. Well, congratulations. We've only been doing that since fucking goddamn 2006 as well. So I'm glad now that you're just now catching up with the rest of the army and the rest of the special operations community in terms of like, cool, now you have dual tube nods. Now you have suppressors on your guns. Maybe in like another 10 years, you'll figure out that knee pads integrated into combat pants are a good idea. Maybe you'll figure <laughs> out high cut. Maybe you'll figure out high cut helmets are great. And like how uh -huh. to like, integrate your communications into that. Maybe you'll figure out at some point, like what ATAC is and how to use ATAC on an end user device, maybe some man portable drone stuff. Like, I don't know, maybe you'll figure out another 10 or 20 years and you'll be caught up finally the with everybody else. still be going. So who fucking right. cares? They've got lots of, listen, they got time. Biden's keeping it rocking. We're just going <laughs> to keep on, we're going to keep on sending people out. Cause we need to hit that. You need to hit that seven right. 11. Uh, so that nine 11 date so that we can have a big parade about it. And then we can all say good job, Biden. You know, we, we can't, we can't just pretend like the war is going to stop. They got lots of time. They're going to develop your, your, you know what? Your light is going to be going on that war for, for, for a decade. You're good. You got oh, lots man. of time. You I, got so much time. Yeah. Well, 
I to circle back around. Yes, that's what I, I now is valuable to me is being able to take product solutions that I know will have an effect mm-hmm. on the survivability and lethality of, of guys still doing the job. So I have several friends that are still out kicking doors. As a matter of fact, I've got one of them that's leaving here this week. That's got one of my beta samples that's going out. So I'll have nice. product in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or somewhere where somewhere, somewhere in that part of the world over there. Yeah. It'll be somewhere over there doing things. Uh, is this getting... a team guy or is this a contractor guy? Uh, this is a, we, we don't discuss what facet. Cool he's, this is, this is he's one of these cool guys. Guy. That, he's a human that doesn't exist. So we'll I just like leave it at that. A lot. Um, I try I have to surround a few. myself with a lot of you. It makes I me have, feel safer. I have a few of them in my life that are still working and they are working at levels that I think is amazing. So yeah, awesome. they're working on that professional NFL level of, of the, you know, special operations community. So, um, yeah, so products go, products going out. So I'm excited about that. It's about to get tested nice. in 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 combat. So I'm. Those are the those are the things. That, yeah, thanks. Those are the things that I live for these days. Is like watching my gear go out. I mean, like, don't fuck it up because it's just like your buddy's life. But it's fine. There's Correct. No pressure, stress, worry, or thought process in yep. that at all. Right, which is why it's taken so long. Like some, mm. I've been beat up on the internet a little bit about like why is it taking so long to get this product out? Well. For that reason, because mm-hmm. the things that I'm designing and developing are very much life support equipment. And if you fuck up life support equipment, people die. So right. we're doing our deal. We're doing the due diligence on making sure that our, you know, T's are crossed and our eyes are dotted and it's going to survive the most rigorous conditions that our end users can put it through. Okay. So tell me then, how did, um, how did you start dabbling in that world of, I guess how you and I met. So let's get into that. How did ayahuasca start coming to your life or psychedelics or any of those other substances? Well, I has been, I was fluent. I was a, I was a wayward soul when I was a, when I was a teenager and I was a a bit of a a wild card and loose cannon as most of us are. No, you wouldn't have been. Nobody would have guessed that for you. Yeah, so I had an introduction to psychedelics through LSD a lot when I was in high school because I was running with a crowd, you know, like I was a, I was a bit of a wayward soul in, in high school and was a, I was a, I was a thug, I was a criminal. Um, there it is. And, That's better. And I, yeah, yeah, that, that it, there it is. Um, <laughs> and I, I figured out how to, you know, not figured out, but I had a lot of experience with drugs in high school, either selling them or doing them uh, recreationally. And so a lot of, I had a lot of experience with LSD and had really great experiences with that. I never had a situation where I freaked out or lost my shit or, you know, had a, had a bad experience. Like I only had good, you know, experiences with LSD. And so then I obviously, when I, you know, figured out that I needed to stop being a criminal and I needed to get my shit together. Cause I was watching my friends get fucking rolled up left and right. Um, and I did, I just stopped doing everything and I stopped hanging out with the, the crowd and of kids that I was running with. And I got my shit together and I started focusing on a career in the military and really cleaned up my act. That's where, it, that's where it kind of started. And then I had a couple situations like in between my, uh, in between my tours of service, um, after I got out in 99, in between that and 9-11, uh, 
where I was snowboarding and, you know, was at house parties up in the mountains of Colorado, you know, and got, you know, offered mushrooms, small amounts of mushrooms. And so did mushrooms and it was more of a recreational thing. And then, and that was all pre pre pre-war era. So I hadn't incurred a lot of trauma Mm. up until that point in my life. So it was all, it was all very recreational, very fun not very spiritual. Like I hadn't connected the dots on the spiritual spirituality aspect or the self, you know, improvement or self-exploratory, you know, things that you use psychedelics for. So what happened was nine, you know, nine 11 happened. I go back in the military, I go to combat, see, you know, I'm involved in the most hyper-violent things you can imagine a human being involved in, you know, with taking of human life from you know basically 2003 to 2010 for seven years across nine deployments and so you know coming back from that getting into you know one of the reasons I had to go to school was because I was having really bad anxiety I was having really bad PTSD you know I was having nightmares my sleep schedule was all fucked up I couldn't sleep through the night I was waking up several times at night like worried like in an alarm state where you wake up and you're like, fuck, where am I? What's going on? Who's on watch? Where the fuck is my kit? Where's my gun? Oh, fuck. Right. Where I don't even know where I'm at. I'm in my apartment in San Francisco, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I was having a lot of those problems. Um, I was having a lot of anger issues. I was destroying a lot of my relationships with, you know, people. I mean, even on my, one of my teams, my call sign was anger. If you can believe oh, yeah. that. Like, yeah. When I was an assistant team leader. Right yeah. I was an assistant team leader, like on my second to last deployment or third to last deployment. Cause then I was a team leader on my second to last deployment. I, I was assistant team leader and I got basically accused. Like <laughs> people were just like, bro, you're just angry all the time. And I was, I was angry and pissed off. Like I had really high standards for myself. I had really high standards for everybody around me. Um, and I think a lot of that too stemmed from not only uh, my it stemmed from not only my, my anxiety levels of and having PTSD because of, you're just constantly involved in hyperviolent shit, but it also stemmed from the fact that like, I was never a badged or tabbed official special operations guy in the U S military. I was, you know, a grunt. I was in a conventional arms capacity. I was a Marine infantryman. Um, and I had taken selections to get to where I was at. You know, I took a a selection and passed it, you know, I passed a couple of recon selections while I was on active duty, um, was not allowed to go, um, which is another reason that helped me make my decision to get the fuck out of the Marine Corps. Cause I was Mm -hmm. like, I can't even do the job that I want to do. I passed the selection process twice. I keep getting told that I'm key personnel. So I can't get orders to go to those units because they won't let me go. Mm -hmm. So then I go through a selection process for Blackwater. I pass, I go through a program selection. I pass, I go through a team selection to get on this really sensitive program that I was working on. I pass. And so, you know, everybody, and it was never a spoken thing, but everybody, you know, would kind of look down their nose at me a little bit because I was just a grunt instead of like a seal or a ranger or this or that. And so what I did is I kind of developed being angry all the time as a byproduct of like me just being on the defensive about my own insecurities of never being a tabbed or, or, or badged guy, but I would consistently make it to where I would work my fucking ass off to consistently outperform them at whatever task we were doing. So like, if I was on a team 
and I had one SEAL, two Rangers, an SF guy, a special mission unit dude, and a, you know, a fucking SWAT officer from Dade County, you know, Miami, like I would purposely, you know, be up, I would purposely always be setting the example of like, I'm up first in the morning, I'm the first one on watch, you know, I'm constantly volunteering for whatever admin tasks or, you know, whatever, you know, like the vehicles need to get prepped, cool, I'm doing it for, for patrol you know, weapons, like ammo needs to get drawn for a mission, demo needs to get drawn for a mission. I was constantly volunteering for everything all the time because I constantly wanted to be a value add and I wanted to outperform all the guys that were around me that would constantly look down their nose at me and judge me for not being technically one of them. And so that really, I think, you know, and I, I, I have this knowledge now by the doing the psychedelics that I've done and being able to like look back and really peel apart the layers and get really self-introspective about like where these issues that I used to have came from. And one of them was just, I was constantly on the defensive all the time because I was, I felt like I had to always be better at everything that I was doing and outperform everybody around me to prove that I could be there at that level. And, you know, and I did, I could outshoot guys. I could out PT guys. I could, I was more fluent in, the language, the local language than most guys, I could, you know, everything that I did, I jumped into it 100% and made sure that I could do it better than the guy on my left or right. And so that what that did is that caused me to always be on the defensive, always have a wall up, always be at a certain level of anger, <laughs> always mm -hmm. keep that slow rolling boil going. Um, <laughs> the slow burn, but it always right. just stays right there. Yeah. And so I, you know, took that out of the military, you know, out of contracting when I finally was done and it, you know, transcended into my business life and into my personal life. And it really fucked up a lot of relationships and, and caused a lot of problems for me. And so then when I, you know, went to college, finally, I was, you know, like I said, I was waking up in my apartment and I was freaked out and I was having these issues. And I finally was like, you know, one of my good friends, you know, who's a Sioux Indian and he's fucking an amazing human he is very into cannabis and he was like I, I was he was calling to check in on me and he called one day and I wasn't having a great day and he was like hey man dude you live in San Francisco like weed is legal there like go get yourself some <laughs> cannabis and like smoke some fucking weed and chill the fuck out and so yeah. I did I went to the local dispensary and told him what my issues were. And the guy behind the counter was like, yeah, you need this strain, this strain and this strain. And, you know, this is what I'd recommend for this. And this is what it costs. And I took some weed out the door with me and, and weed really like did a good job of like, you know, calming me down and starting to take me off that super edgy, you know, low rolling boil. And then I went to, um, and then I recognized too, that I probably should go to therapy and I should start talking about some of this shit. And I'd already done a little bit of that privately during, you know, my divorce process. I was going to a, a veteran counselor for a while to like talk me off the ledge during my divorce. But then when I got to San Francisco, I went to the VA. And what I will say about the VA is like the VA has sucked every single place that I've been except for San Francisco, like San Francisco, they really? actually do a really great job of taking care of veterans and like being out of the box thinkers and like providing, you know, alternative treatments or just being easy to work with in terms of like, you know, like I have tweaky discs in my back from wearing body yeah. armor and helmets. And so the, um, 
you know, they didn't have acupuncture at the hospital. So I'm like, Hey, can I get some acupuncture done? Cause I got it done in the past and it worked. I that I paid for out of my own pocket and it worked really good. And they were like, yeah. And no problem went and got me a, you know, basically got me hooked up with a acupuncturist. Uh, and I went and got acupuncture done on my back and sorted myself out and they paid for it. And it was really awesome. And it was never a situation that I'd run into with VA in San Francisco where I've run into other problems with other VAs in other places where I lived where it's just constant bureaucracy. And it's like, we can't do this. We can't do that. We, nope, 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 nope. And the veterans just get really pissed off and yep. really frustrated. And, and that's why the VA gets a really fucking horrible rap is because. I mean, they also get a horrible rap because they were sending people who are calling on a suicide hotline to fucking voicemail. So correct. They, yes. That they too, get a yes. fucking bad rap for actual reasons that yes, they deserve correct. to get a bad rap for. Yeah. The whole, yeah, the whole system I'm still not a huge fan of, but they did a really good job in San Francisco. So I got hooked up with a really great, uh, a really great therapist. And I went to therapy once a week, every week while I was in San Francisco during my time in my semesters there. And so going to therapy and then having access to cannabis really kind of calmed me the fuck down. And then um, I continued to explore, you know, I had other friends that recommended psychedelics to me to continue to explore things. So I started doing a little bit more mushrooms and getting into that every once in a while. And it was nothing, you know, with my cannabis use and psychedelics, you know, still to this day, it's not something that I do recreationally every single day. Like some people do, like I'm not rolling a joint every morning to deal with life. I'm not I am not, which I have no what judgment around that. I'm just saying, there, like, buddy guy, which is yeah, I mean, there, buddy guy. <laughs> Stop FaceTiming me stoned in your garage. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know how. So, yeah, I have no judgment around that. I just, mm. it's like for me, I don't, I don't feel like I need to be that medicated all the time. When right. I start to feel, when I start to feel the stress or the anxiety, or I start to feel like I, I'm, or I'm having problems like sleeping as well as I mm -hmm. should be then yeah, I'll pop a gummy or I will, if I've had a really bad day and I feel like a lot of anxiety, then yeah, I'll roll up a joint and smoke one and jump in a hot tub. Sure. But it's not an everyday thing. Sometimes right. not even an every week thing. Like sometimes I'll go a couple of months without, you know, using any cannabis or without even drinking alcohol. Like I don't even drink that much alcohol anymore. Um, you know, I'll have an IPA here and there, but I don't really. That's probably the best for you though, because we know right. that with veterans and with depression and PTS and PTSD and all the other things that accompany that often, well, we know alcohol is a depressant. So it's stay away from it. If you are already predisposed to those types of things, it's probably for right. the best at that point. Yeah. So I don't, I don't go hard in the paint, uh, regularly, like I used to with alcohol. So, and like getting, actually but, getting away, getting away from alcohol. I mean, I still will tie one on every once in a while, like with Andy, like with, during Thanksgiving, or during New Year's, like we got fucking blind shit house crawling on hands and knees through the snow drunk, you know, and I'll still do that every once in a while. But that's a very every once in a while thing, you right. know, either on a holiday or a special occasion, you know, for the most part. Now, if I like using the alcohol, it's like I'll have two beers done, have two yeah. glass, two small glasses of whiskey done, um, mainly because I I'm getting old and don't like dealing with the hangover the next day. It just fucking ruins my day and then I'm not productive and then I get pissed off about that so right. but going down the track like what I noticed was psychedelics and I started doing more and more and more and more um and I've taken some really great space flights with with old Griff 
um, to where we've done some big boy, big kid, like crazy seven and nine gram doses of, of, uh, you know, mushrooms. And we've gone on those like 13 hour rides and, you know, I've been able to really now start to, because I have so much experience in psychedelics, I can really start to like use it as a tool, Mm -hmm. so to speak, where I can like meditate and go inside of myself and really start peeling back layers of my ego, layers of my pride, really start to analyze like the way I do things, why I do things, my past trauma, why I have that past trauma, how I've let that affect me and the things that I can do to now start, you know, mitigating that. Uh, so that, that I don't have those type of feelings anymore, or, you know, help really start paring down my, um, anxiety. And so climbing up the spectrum on mushrooms, you know, and looking at what other alternative plant medicines were out there. Um, I got turned on to ayahuasca like a year before I actually did it. It was like the same thing with the, you know, with the design school, like I'm a nerd. I like to research the shit out of things. And I like to take my time with getting involved with anything. Um, just not people. Correct. Women still very elusive in my life because I tend to send them away screaming with their faces on fire. Why the, do we do that though, Bishop? Why is that happening though, Bishop? Why is that happening though, Bishop? It's, it's safe. <laughs> is it safe or is it because you only go after women that you DM on Instagram? No. Oh, your face right now is fucking not, brilliant. It's, Watch uh, the video of has, this, has, everyone. It has, has nothing to do with it. Hit a I can't nerve, confirm, everyone. Senator, I can't confirm or deny whether that operation actually took place. If it indeed took place, I cannot really talk that's, that's specifically okay. you, about you the nature of that operation. Because you and I know the truth. And that's all that really matters at the end of the day. I love how you're just like shameless and you'll just throw me right the fuck under the bus with no zero absolute zero remorse look at her face zero she's smiling the best. she's smiling oh, right now fucking ear to ear too it's the best yeah you do it so, yourself and that's why but with 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 those with those points of intro introspection and those things that you've been able to discover and work within yourself at what point did you go I want to make the jump to something like ayahuasca, because like you said, you did the research, you did all of those things. How long ago before you and I met, did you start doing ayahuasca and using it as a healing property in medicine? I think I'd only done one. Um, I'd only done one, or I mean, one set, not, not one session. I've, I've done, I think I did three or four ceremonies prior to us meeting. Like mm-hmm. the, the time that we did, like when we went and did it together was that was my second time doing ayahuasca so fucking hard for your second time then yeah well i mean that's just what my constitution is with my physiology and like with drugs like that's why i can sit in a room with griff and bang nine grams of tea and like go on a 14 hour ride and not freak out not lose my shit not go crazy not cry not get in the fetal position and suck my thumb i can be like this is cool um yeah so Yes. Uh, the first time I did ayahuasca, I noticed that like I needed a heavier dose than other people. Mm-hmm. So yes. So when we sat down with the shaman <laughs> and they're like, how much would you like? And I'm like 45 milliliters people, you know, which was like almost <laughs> triple the dose everybody yeah. else was taking. And people were like, what, what, what did you say? I'm like, yeah. Um, and because I was trying to find, I was trying to find my boundaries with it you know, mm-hmm. which I think that 
might be close to where uh, there's a good boundary with that. Like I did pretty have sure a very interesting. It. Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty sure, sure I found my. Found it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I found my boundary with it, which is good, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that night that night was great, but that was only the second time that I'd done it, and I got I get a lot out of it. And what I would say is that I feel amazing after coming out. Of, I don't know how I can't speak for you. And we haven't really had a chance to peel it apart. So maybe we can do that now. But like when I yeah. come out of ceremony, I feel so fucking great and so centered and so grounded. And just like, I feel so calm. And what it does is it gives me a fucking really great grasp on my emotional state. Like I feel so in control of my emotions and I don't like, let like crazy shit, like blow me up. And, and, and granted it's what I found with it is it's a very, it's, First of all, ayahuasca is not recreational in my opinion at all. Like it, no, so, it's not. So no. for people that don't, that are listening, that are considering it, or they're doing research on it, or they're just looking at psych- psychedelics in general and they've never done them, and people are like, "Well, you know, I don't want to freak out. I don't want to lose control. I'm scared to see things that aren't there." Well, they're there, I mean, you will, whether you think that you see them or not. It's just they're there. Right. You will. Yes, you will definitely see things that aren't are not there, but it's not, if you do it responsibly and you do it in a measured and controlled environment, like the, the ceremonies are very measured, very controlled, very well mm-hmm. done. I have never felt like I was in danger. I've never felt like I was out of control. I've never felt like, um, you know, scared at all. I've always been like, and really with psychedelics across the board, I've always been like able to just like watch the watcher, like go inside of myself and like sit back and like watch, watch what's happening with my ego and like watch what's happening around me and what's going on in the environment. And then like, just be very much the spectator and very analytic, very analytically minded with what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I feel great when I come out of ceremony and unfortunately it's like a, it's a short-lived thing. Like it only lasts, uh, you know, for me, it only lasts a little, like that, that good euphoric feeling only lasts probably like, I don't know, a month or so, depending on what's going on, depending on what's happening in my life. Like the first time I went to ceremony and came out of it, like I had this long period where I had no stress. Everything was great. I really got to integrate and download a lot of great lessons from the, from the, from the journey and from the medicine. And it was awesome. I integrated so many good things in my life. Um, and it felt great. This, this last time I had some pretty fucking huge things shift and move around. And I remember a short period of time after ceremony for you too. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, it's great. Like, I mean, I'm, and I'm sure some people have like, some people that watch my, my followers that watch my, you know, watch my um, Instagram feed, they watch my feed regularly. They, and I've like put some certain things out. They knew that like a lot of people have known that this last two month period was really hard for me coming out of ceremony. I went right into this situation. And I remember like, you know, our shaman and Griff both basically looked at me and were like, you're going to be heavily challenged on this next evolution. So just be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And like, so I got the warning order before I walked out the door that I was going to be getting challenged a lot. And I did, I walked out the door and, uh, you know, basically went into a situation where my 
fucking business relationship with my business partner went sideways and, you know, I got chopped off at the knees and had to like shift gears and then like, you know, I had to pivot super, super fucking hard. Um, And a lot of that was out of my control, you know, and then I thought that I met this person, you know, member of the opposite sex that I was like, super, super, like, I thought that was my person. And as it turned out, she was not a great human being. And she just kind of used me for her own nefarious purposes, uh, which I won't get into, but don't she think kind you of, should see my right. eyes. Think you should shut the fuck <laughs> yeah, up about right. that. Have you been catching the crazy eyes I'm giving you? <laughs> yeah, Get right. up, victim. Don't talk yeah. about that shit. Right. Yeah. So It'll come back to bite you. It always right. does. Yeah. So all those people shall really rename, remain nameless and all of those things mm-hmm. will, I will not discuss them openly or right. name names, but yeah, I got into a situation where I thought I was madly in love with someone. And as it turned out that they were just using me for, for, for their own specific purposes. And so then that ended. And so I went through this situation where I went through a death of like a phase of my business with a partner that I like trusted implicitly who betrayed the fuck out of me and then went through a situation where like my, that, that whole situation put my social circle in flux and really fucked with my social circle a lot. And then went through this like relationship thing where, you know, I thought it was one thing and it wasn't that thing. And then that went through the death of that essentially Mm -hmm. and had to just go into what, the message I got during that ceremony was step into your power. And I remember I, I told you about it. Yeah, you did. I told you. And it was really fucked up and weird. Cause I heard you were laying on my right side <laughs> and I, I heard, coming. I heard the woman's voice like on the left side of me in my deaf fucking ear. My, this ear is gone. It's like 70% gone from gunfire and explosions. And I heard very clearly a woman's voice say step into your power. And so I was trying to unravel that message. And for the longest time, I was trying to unravel that message. And then as I left ceremony and I started my little path and journey of going on and on and on through all of these things, I finally got to the point where I was like, oh, it's downloading now. It's Mm -hmm. I'm integrating this now. Like, this is what that meant. Step into your power meant like you're going to be challenged. You're going to have to step up to the plate. You're going to have to be in your power or your most powerful state to withstand these little tests and trials that you're going to go through to get to your next point. So I looked at it and downloaded that message. And I'm now I I was like, okay, cool. Well, I've problem solved through harder shit than this. I've problem solved through more dangerous shit than this. I've had more, I've had more difficult times in my life than these things right now. So I need to keep all of that in perspective and in consciousness know that I can get through this. And realistically, that's what, to me, that's what my entrepreneurial or my entrepreneurial journey has been is solving one problem set after another. And it's really is what we do as a, as a designer, you know, anybody that's a designer will tell you, you're really just solving problem sets and creating solutions in whatever medium that is, whether it's product, whether it's a vehicle, whether it's like sustainable energy, whether it's a, you know, a generator to produce electricity that you throw in the ocean and the current produces electricity you like you're just constantly solving problem sets and so i looked at this error this like brief time in my life as a situation that would you know basically uh help teach me how to deal with rapid problem solving on a larger scale in a 
more compressed time frame, which is what I've done. And I'm very much, I'm very much comfortable in doing that now. And so that was kind of what I feel like the big lesson and the big takeaway from this last ceremony was, was like how to deal with massive amounts of fucking stress, super complex problems and come up with viable solutions to deal with that. So that's kind of what I've been doing for the last two months. And now I'm just getting to a place where I've reached equal equilibrium again and the water's calm again and things are great. And, and I've put measures in place and solved the problems. And now, now I'm just like in execution mode again. So things are, things are really great, but the, uh, you know, anybody that's interested in doing plant medicine and going down that path, like I can't recommend it enough. Like it's been fucking life-changing for me. Mm -hmm. So thanks Griff. Um, it's been amazing. It's been from like from all of us because he's just like drug all of us into this this ideal world of his what does he call us the the, the little enlightened warriors he just brings mm -hmm. in and puts in this little circle right yeah so he he's he's masterful at finding solutions to things as well and he's also masterful about interpersonal dynamics and human beings and like bringing great people bringing really great people together so you know, everybody that I met, all the veterans that I met at uh, the our ceremony were, you know, mm -hmm. they're fantastic. And they're, you know, they're going to be lifelong friends now. And, you know, it was a really, it was an amazing experience. So I can't, I can't stress it enough, like how life changing it was in a positive way. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's scary. And it's going to cause a little bit of stress on you, but you will, you'll get through it. I mean, stress, you got, you got stress. through it. Barely stress right. and pressure I, create beautiful, beautiful, shiny objects. And that's okay I mean, to have that. When you were laying next to me in the field position, like bawling and sucking your thumb, like, mm -hmm. I, and like, I thought that, you know, at one point, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm just going to have to let her just cry it out because it sounds like, it sounds like somebody's dying over there. But at the end of that, how great did you mm -hmm. feel? I, it's not even that I felt great. It was more than that. There was more to it than that for me. It was, uh, I needed, I was, I was at a point where, well, you actually witnessed it. I had an, I had a situation where I almost didn't get across the border and I called Griff who I, at that point had known for a whopping, uh, had conversation just on my podcast. He, his combat flip-flops is a great sponsor of ours, which I talk about all the time. And they, Griff has been instrumental in, in helping in a lot of ways in that. And then, you know, after the podcast, him and I talked briefly, uh, and he just kind of gave me that look that he gives, which you'll only really know Griff is giving you that look when it's happening to you, where he kind of leans in real close and then just looks into your soul like this and goes, Hey, how you doing? And you're like, oh, fuck, he knows. He can see yeah. right through me. Yes. And uh, we, we talked he's about that. He's great at that. Oh, he's so good at that. And so I, I he goes, I want to give you a call about something. I was like, okay. And we talked and he goes, listen, I, there's an opportunity for this group of people through this charity and they're all their vets. And so the only thing is like, you might be the only woman. So I like, I don't know how your husband feels about that and all of that. And I was like, that doesn't fucking matter because he doesn't care. And so I said, when is this? How do I get there? What is the means and ways? And he said, you know, you got to do this, this, and this. I said, okay. Being that it was COVID, I hadn't opened my passport in like a year because I hadn't traveled for business because most of my business at the time was in the States and I was in and out of Chicago and Dallas and all these, I was bobbing around on a flight at least once a month to somewhere for some trade show. And 
I hadn't looked and I looked and it had expired the day before. Uh, and so I had a full on fucking meltdown. Doesn't even come close to what it was. Um, it was, uh, for me truly at that point, And I, and my husband knows about it and he knows I talk about it. And so I was violently suicidal. So like, shouldn't be left alone. Like would come in, I'd be here at the office and Callie would come in in the morning and I'd be sitting on the floor crying, saying, I don't want to live anymore. And this was all the way up to January of this year. And so I had done at that point therapy, every drug the government would give me, everything possible, and started using cannabis a bit, uh, right before it was legalized. So I was one of the, f and I was an early adopter in Canada where it wasn't legal yet. And I was still willing to go and find it and do whatever it took to just give relief at any point. And I really thought I was not going to make it across the border to get to where I needed to go. And what I didn't know, and I now know now after doing ayahuasca and, and having that experience with her is that there is challenges that are presented, whether it be at the beginning of the journey in the middle or at the end. And that goes to exactly what ayahuasca is. It's that, that test, that, that ability to be able to learn, take what you've learned or how badly do you need it kind of situation. So when I called Bishop, when I called Griff, apparently you were in the car. So that was your first was. introduction to me. And I was hysterical. Yeah, I looked over at him and I was like, that bitch is a fucking train yeah. wreck. She yeah. is a fucking mess. Yeah. And yeah. he was, he looked at me and he goes, it's exactly why we have to get her here. And yeah. so we, that yeah, got problem solved and got, got figured it out because you were you were a hysterical wreck yeah and so you got you got sorted out and we yeah. had a good we had because we're the sick individuals that we are we had a good laugh about your 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 crying a little bit like you're right his, and your, it was okay. your hysteria we got yeah. we had a little bit of laugh about that yeah but we're, it was bad we're all veterans and we're sick like that and people don't understand that like i we had to i had to have a talk with people the other day that overheard us okay. talking on the phone <laughs> and they were horrified by the things Don't we were saying to each other and i was like i was like we are we won't go into details on it but no we won't i was like look have you ever seen the Chappelle show and they're like yes and i was like do you like the Chappelle show and they're like yes of course david Chappelle is brilliant like he's fucking hilarious and i was like yeah uh -huh. i was like okay well you don't need to get upset then because the military is very much like the Chappelle show and like, there are, there are no holds barred and like everybody no. gets, everybody gets roasted. It doesn't matter yes. who you are, what color you are, where you come from. If you're rich, if you're poor, everybody's going to get, everybody's going to get roasted. Field. Yeah. It's right. a level playing field and everybody's going to get roasted. So, um, and that's just how and veterans in gen, yeah, just how veterans in general are. Like I've, I've had, I've seen it to where I've been at like backyard barbecues or whatever. And like the <laughs> veterans will get in their little circle in the backyard and we'll start talking shit and having a great time. And then like, we look around and like looks on the faces of other people sitting there looking at us. Yeah. We're like, oh, we took it to a 10. We probably shouldn't have taken it to a 10 with the, the other humans that are sitting here right now watching us. So yeah, don't panic people. It's just, it's just how no, we do it's things. it's just jokes, man. But that's yeah. when I, when I got to, when I finally did get to meet you, I remember I, um, Griff made it very explicit. He goes, listen, there's going to be some people on this. Um, you're going to like them. I, you know, I haven't met some of them, but there's some you're going to like. And he goes right off the bat, he goes, I brought you and I brought Bishop for a reason. I feel like two things, one, one of two things are going to happen here. He goes, um, you're both going to gang up on me. 
and just feed me shit all weekend or what it's going to what it's going to help me with is you're going to go at him and he's going to go at you and I'm going to be sitting over here peacefully and fucking quiet for like the first time that bishops around that I'm not getting shit for something at any point and truly what ended up happening was a bit of a mix of both but one thing that I found the most valuable for me was and I think that was the biggest transition after doing the first ceremony I, I it is, is, it's very terrifying walking into something when you have never, you've done, I've dabbled in psychedelics, but not to the extent that you have, but I had dabbled enough to know that I was going to see things and be in places and all of this. But what I was not really ready for was the level of anxiety that I had the first time I drank ayahuasca and was given. And it took a whopping 20 minutes and I vomited it up immediately. And I was so nervous. Did you not notice that within the first ceremony? I fucking puked like great. Everybody wasn't even done drinking yet. Immediately. Yeah, yeah immediately. immediately. I was so nervous as to what that was going to feel like. And then I did the second dose. And then I was like, oh, oh, never mind. I threw up all of the first dose. This is why I was just chilling for a few hours going, oh, this isn't that bad. This is yeah. too crazy. And then I saw eyes floating in the sky and shit went sideways from there. But the thing that you're talking about in my crying like a little bitch on the last night was partially because I got a false positive COVID test the day before I was supposed to fly home. And so I went into full-blown panic mode in every single way, shape, and form and heightened myself and brought my anxiety to such a level that what, by the time I actually got to walk into ceremony, I had what asked one question and I wanted one answer and I was so not fucking ready for what she took me on a ride to. And so, yeah, I cried like a little bitch and yeah, I, I sure on in the fetal position. So right. Bad. But it cleansed you out. Like the way I like to describe ayahuasca to people is it's like a spiritual and energetic enema like the shift it rinses you the fuck it rinses you out and if you're like holding on to massive amounts of trauma you will you will purge it out like you will Mm -hmm. throw up like the exorcist and you will shit like a fire hydrant and like that's just how it is Okay. And, and no people, nobody's shitting in their pants during ceremony. There's bathrooms. I mean, Griff, there. don't, I mean, Griff, don't I panic. Mean, Griff came close at one point in he his did. all he, white suit. He did. He ran and he, yes, he was wearing a ceremonial, like all white outfit. And that would have been like, yeah, it was like, yeah. He didn't run. Was, I was outside when he came It was like out. Deadpool. He, he should have worn the, yes. should have wore the brown pants tonight. Yes. Yeah. And he ran at, he fucking bounced like a deer. It took three steps to the bathroom. That's how quick he yeah. moved. Yeah, but it works. Yeah, it's a, it yeah, changes it, lives. So, yeah, yeah, and so it's dark, and so for people that are <laughs> now panicking because they're like, I don't want to throw up in front of people. Well, guess what? No. You th- you throw up a lot. You do, and no one can see you, no. so it's dark in there. Like you're pretty much in complete blackness. Um, very little light, so no one can see you. No one can like we can hear you. We can hear you like vomiting. And we can see your shadow run across the room when you're running to the shitter. (laughs) But, and everybody laughs about it a little bit, but everybody does it. So, um, yeah, it's a, but that experience, like it cleanses you out and it leaves you shiny and clean and feeling great. And just also, I'm not just, yeah, on the inside, but I think also it alleviates, I know for me personally, it alleviated, oh my God, I haven't been on a pharmaceutical drug since. 
yeah. alleviated everything. My nightmares significantly and drastically subsided over and still are at a, just now I'm getting a little bit of stuff kicking and it's only because of so many outside stressors, but there are, I mean, from the beginning of the year till now, right now we're rocking, what are we, May 12th, I'm seeing a, a significant improvement in who I am, but it did, like you said, it gave you that understanding of your emotions and, and that ability to control them, but you do see that taper. And I think the, the takeaway from this would be it can taper, it can, it can lessen, or it can feel um, less euphoric but that doesn't mean the lessons are lost and it doesn't mean the tools that were provided and shown to you are any less than powerful any less than powerful or any less than useful in terms of healing and continual progression in your journey correct i feel the exact same way and i feel like the threshold for like your evolved or enlightened state increases right. every time so that as that tapers down you're tapering down to a higher level than you were previously and then another higher level where you were previously. So as you taper down, yes, you 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 are going to feel those effects and you are going to taper down, but you will be at a better level, especially if you're like working hard to meditate and in integrate the the lessons that you learned and the things that you explored and learned during the during the ceremony if you integrate them properly and actually do work on it, then you will you know, that, that taper will be less and less and less as time goes on. And that's what I find. And was one of the biggest thing about heroic hearts and the thing that they did, excuse me, so effectively was the importance of integration afterward. And also the continuous conversation with those in your group to keep one accountable, whether it be through drinking or addiction habits or, you know, X, Y, and Z mm -hmm. for you, there was a few other things that we'll work on, but that takes time. And you're, I mean, you're learning, we'll work on it. You're, you're a special individual that needs Correct. special attention and a lot of slapping in the face to fucking realize what he's doing is wrong, but that's okay because we have those friends in our lives and we don't, we don't push them out. We just, you hold them closer and say, it's okay. You have mommy issues. It's okay. We'll figure it out. Not saying we'll, it's we'll you or anything. We'll figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah, figure it out. Yeah, problem solved. Do you realize that we have just about hit the three-hour mark, my friend? I see that. Yeah, I was looking at the time right now, and I was like, "Wow, we've we've killed we've killed a good block of time." We've killed a good block of time, and I think I'm gonna cut it there for us, and then I'm just gonna have you on again, and I'm just gonna drag you over the coals and bring up the fact that you're the redheaded stepchild of the group that um, just kind of is off doing his own thing and doesn't show up for integration calls or, you know, just trolls people on the internet and you know it's fine it's all fine i mean it's not a mistake that my handle on instagram is lone element it's not that's not by mistake at in any way shape or form i feel like a lot of things you do aren't by mistake and somehow very methodically planned out whether you like to admit it or not you would be correct i'm again this is like the third fucking time you have said that i am correct and for my point and my listeners if you you can literally count how many times i have been told i'm right this right, but as soon as we get as soon as we get off here, like I'm gonna talk mad amount a mad amount of shit to you, so it's okay. fine. Well, then let's get the fuck off here. Tell everybody your Instagram handles, where they can find your amazing new equipment for proper vision within the military sector. I mean, that was that was not bad. That's not a bad plug. Um, so yeah. you can you can find my company doing product stuff 
for hunting and for special operations at Orion Design Group. It's uh, the web the website's uh, www.odgusa.co, not .com, .co. Um, you can find me on uh, Instagram. My personal page is at Lone Element. That's kind of the hub where everybody falls to go out to my other pages, which I've just recently set up. I'm trying to do this whole new diversification of my content um, to make things better for my followers, but also to kind of deal with cancel culture as it is right now on social media. So I've, I'm in the process right now of building out my two, my pro two a tactical training, shooting, anything gun or military related page that's in the works right now. Um, I'm doing an overland build because I'm getting ready to go. Uh, I'm going to go jump in my truck and live in my truck for the summer and drive around and enjoy the great outdoors and, um, you know, get some peace and quiet over the summer and probably start writing my book. That's oh my God, finally. Right. So I'm going to probably do that over the summer. So you'll find that page. Uh, mm -hmm. that's in, it's called the Interdible Hulk. Um, if you're into trucks and TRD and Toyota racing development, all that, you'll get the joke. Um, and then let's see, what else do I have? I think that's it for right now. Just my Interdible Hulk page, my ODG USA page and Lone Element. So you can find me at one of those three places. And as soon as I get my gun and training related content up and running, which will be, I'm going to probably start a Patreon page for that too. Since YouTube wants to demonetize anything that has to do with firearms education, we'll probably do all of that on Patreon. So eventually that will be up as well. And then also, so, if you enjoyed any of the redheaded stepchild on the show, you can go and check him out. He often co-hosts the Cleared Hot podcast with Andy Stump, and he does the Full Auto Friday, which I will admit was and is continuing to be entertaining. It has been a minute, so we have seen you on there, so we will have to push Andy to get his shit together and have you back on since we know, unfortunately, I hate to admit it, he is entertaining, he is funny, he's a little fucking weird, but aren't we all? And I'm going to leave it there for the listeners. Listen, I'm going to have him again. If you have any questions or random retorts you would like to throw my way about literally anything we said on this show, you can send it to info at Brass and Unity and I'll do my best to either delete it and or answer it if I feel it is worth answering. Otherwise, listeners, we will check you out all next week. See ya.